As you said, pretty much every other meta-analysis on this topic has kind of only investigated one or two buckets of studies that were ultimately included in our, in our analysis. For the most part, exercises that expose the, the muscle that is being measured for hypertrophy and particularly are challenging in that position seem to be also be the studies where you don't need to go quite as close to failure. Welcome to the N1 Experience. Brought to you by M1 Education, the leader in fitness education. Hey, what's up, everybody? I am here with Zach Robinson today, um, one of the authors on the new meta-analysis that uh, I guess it's a meta-regression is a better way of putting it on training to failure. And we're going to dig into that and the training to failure research as a whole. So really quick, before we get started, why don't you give us a little bit of information about yourself and the you know, the data-driven strength team and kind of what you guys are doing. And then we can kind of roll into this new meta-analysis that everybody's talking about. Cool. The, my least favorite part of uh, every podcast here. But uh, yeah, quick rundown to myself. Uh, my name is Zach Robinson, currently a PhD student at Florida Atlantic University, um, working on my PhD kind of related to resistance training, all that good stuff. Specifically, my PhD is actually going to be in uh, individual response um, to resistance training, which I'm sure we can have a good chat about given the, given the name of your company. So that, uh, that, that's, that's one of my favorite topics as well, but specifically I did my master's thesis and obviously this project related to proximity to failure. Um, our lab at FAU does all kinds of stuff related to, uh, program design, things like that. And data driven strength is just, a you know, a company of myself and some other individuals that are just trying to take the research and break it down as practically as possible to, you know, give people what's a, some better advice and places to start when they're when they're training. But as you know, um, it's only a place to start, and we kind of have to navigate, you know, using our entrenches experience from there. So, kind of trying to combine all those spokes of information to make it as practical as possible for you know people that are just starting to train all the way to advanced lifters. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm I'm really excited to kind of discuss the uh, the the project here with you today, Kasim. I think there's um, there's obviously some important things to go out in terms of the methodology, but this project in particular, I think, is really interesting to get a lot of the the interpretation through someone like yourself with a ton of entrenches experience with the lens that you which you view those results and ultimately some of the finer nuances in terms of applying it I think will be interesting I think you have some particular expertise in certain questions that I have had kind of reviewing this on the back end that I'd be interested to get your take on so I'm excited to chat today for sure awesome so to start um you've covered this study pretty well I think pretty thoroughly on the Revive Stronger podcast. And we will put that link down below um, so you guys can kind of, you know, if you guys want to get a kind of more thorough breakdown of the study design and how it was done and just another great conversation, I suggest you guys check that out. So we're going to kind of try and build upon that rather than just repeat it. But if you had to give us the cliff notes of kind of what you guys did and maybe how this is different than the previous meta-analysis that was done What's like the quick version of that? Absolutely. And I'll, I'll try to keep things pretty brief here. If there's anything else you want me to explain a little bit more, just let me know. So long story short here, this topic in particular, so proximity to failure for resistance training and its application to strength and hypertrophy has essentially always been investigated in a binary. So failure versus non-failure. There's a few other areas of research that have put it in categorical terms as well. But obviously, when we're going to actually make training prescriptions, understanding the entire nature of the relationship of proximity to failure and its relation to a training outcome, understanding that whole dose response curve can be really, really helpful. And so that was kind of the, the mission that we sought out to try to achieve. Now, when you go through every one of these individual studies, you quickly realize that 
unlike how we would, you know, do in a training context where we write down the RAR, at least that we perceive on every single set. Some individuals may even reference some sort of velocity uh, profile to objectively try to assign RARs. We're really dealing with sparse data there in terms of the actual published research. So what we had to do was go through every single one of these individual studies in as systematic but inherently subjective um, way as possible to estimate RAR in every single one of these studies so that we can perform an analysis that actually allows us to quantify the dose-response relationship between proximity to failure and these training outcomes. As far as what we found, it seems that um, for, for strength, I guess I'll say that one first, strength seems to be essentially a negligible, negligible relationship with proximity to failure when you meet a few specific conditions. And the main one there is at a given percentage of 1RM. We can go into that a little bit more if you want to. I think you're more interested in the hypertrophy kind of conversation if I'm accurate in that. So we'll keep we'll keep rolling on that. In terms of the hypertrophy relationship, the 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 statement that I would come away from the paper with is that there seems to be a relationship between proximity to failure and training outcomes um, for hypertrophy. That seems that as you get closer to failure, training outcomes seem to improve. That's probably where I would stop with confident statements due to tons of things that go into the actual analysis and how the actual dose response curve ends up looking. And so that's basically where I would stop is to say there's a meaningful relationship between proximity to failure and hypertrophy such that as we get closer to failure, training outcomes improve, but there's tons of additional context in terms of the volumes, the sets or repetition equated studies, all kinds of different things that we can get into. But as far as the cliff notes and the, the main points that we can take away from there, that's where I'd say. And then the additional one component I would say is that seems to be further mediated by the load used such that heavy loads for hypertrophy somewhere greater than about an 8RM or so, I would say, proximity to failure seems to become substantially less important. So from my perspective, I think this kind of relates to the anecdote that people seem to have with multi-joint exercises. So for example, when you think squats, generally speaking, people tend to feel that you don't need to take those as close to failure as comparison to a leg extension. From my perspective, although this is one of the questions I have for you, some other factors related to those exercises, I think that's probably because people just habitually tend to train multi-joint exercises with heavier loads such that the proximity to failure doesn't seem to matter quite as much. That would be my kind of elevator pitch on kind of what we found. But of course, there's tons of limitations and additional kind of nuances that are important to consider when uh, practically applying that. So when it comes down to trying to put as much data together as you guys did, so I look at this topic as when you're you're trying to investigate training to failure, like you're in a sea of confounders. Absolutely. Right. Yep. So the the pro or what you're trying to accomplish is trying to basically get enough data to hopefully overpower that mass of confounders, right? And so that's the, you know, because some people ask, well, like, why don't we just rely on the single study that's doing the direct comparison to get this? And, you know, I mean, we could spend we could spend a whole like probably several episodes just getting into all of the confounders, you know, but you know, a lot like just to throw out a couple examples, like one would be like, you know, depending on what the current volume tolerance is of an individual in a study, right? Well, if one group's training closer to failure and one group's training further away, if you're at somebody's volume limit versus if it's kind of a very under volume, you might get, you know, drastically different responses in those people, right? And then there's going to be differences between different exercises with different resistance challenges. There's just all of these variables. So I think, you know, in general, the whole purpose of a meta-analysis is to take a topic where it's got a ton of that. And then the more data points that we can get, the more confidence we can get that the signal we're seeing is actually, you know, causation to the thing we're trying to investigate and trying to eliminate the signal of the confounders. Now, 
I know one of the critiques is maybe we don't have enough studies on this topic, but I think that's kind of what your goal was by kind of expanding what was eligible to be part of this conversation. Because, you know, the 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 meta-analysis, the one that came out a little bit earlier in 2023, that was more of a looking at just the direct studies, right? And so what are the things that got added in to your meta-analysis that were excluded from that prior one? Absolutely. That was an absolutely perfect way to kind of paint the narrative. So as you said, pretty much every other meta-analysis on this topic has kind of only investigated one or two buckets of studies that were ultimately included in our in our analysis. So obviously you have the studies, like you said, that are very directly designed to answer the question of failure versus non-failure. That's kind of the most standard bucket of studies, and those are the ones that have been predominantly focused on in all the previous meta-analyses. I can't recall exactly how many studies the recent one had, but I think it's somewhere around 10 to 15-ish, if I recall correctly, somewhere in that range. Um, so that's one bucket of studies. Another bucket of studies are those that directly report RAR, and that might be like subjective perception thereof, so some limitations associated with that, but at least it's some sort of data directly quantifying proximity to failure in some way. Um, so I think a lot of the time those are also included in those papers as well, depending on the study. Now, as you very uh, correctly point out, we kind of expanded our inclusion criteria to encompass, from my perspective, all of the data that is relevant to this question. Importantly, there are important caveats associated with that, which we kind of teased out with some of the moderator analyses that we can go into if you want to. But put simply, there was kind of two other buckets that based on the estimation process, we could kind of bring into the equation to give us more studies. And as you said, more observations that will hopefully allow us to tease out this relationship accounting for all this other noise that um, is in the system with the study designs. So those two areas are the velocity loss research. So just to very simply kind of summarize what one of those studies would look like, you have two different groups. One, both of them are training with three sets at, let's say, 75% of their 1RM. So number of sets is equated, load is equated, and repetitions are uh, rest is equated, let's say. One group will train to a 40% velocity loss threshold, which means they're going to continue doing repetitions within each set until the bar speed declines by 40% versus another group that does the exact same thing but only goes to a 20% velocity loss threshold. So those are indirectly manipulating proximity to failure by terminating the sets at different percentages of the velocity decay within a set, which is going to be related to how close to failure you are. Now, the limitation with those studies is that they're also manipulating a secondary metric of volume. I guess in hypertrophy, we normally focus on the number of sets but the kind of hidden premises in that usually are that it's generally above five reps or so to count it and generally that it's close enough to failure. So it ends up kind of being tautological in, in, in the regard to the proximity to failure comment because that's what we're trying to investigate. So because the number of repetitions are changing, that could be substantially different volumes at the end of the study. I think sometimes the higher velocity loss groups are doing over 100% more total repetitions. Um, so that's something that's important to take into account, which we did in the analysis. But those studies were able to be included because we were able to take those velocity loss thresholds and equate those the best we could to an actual RAR. Now, there's a bunch of limitations with that, but that was one of the reasons we were able to include those. The second group of studies, that's probably the one that people are less familiar with in terms of the hypertrophy research, are what are called alternative set structures. And so basically those use two different types of uh, rest redistribution, basically. 
to terminate sets farther from failure. So once again, let's take the example of one group does three sets of 10 with a 10 RM. So three sets to failure basically um, with 10 reps. These other groups, these alternative set structures are going to intersperse rest periods between those same 30 total repetitions to make the cumulative amount of work done farther from failure. And so again, those are kind of brought into the equation because we're able to, through a variety of different methods, estimate the RER, which those groups are training as well. And then we can kind of bring those into the mix. Obviously, as you said, for those, there's also the confounder of the differences in rest periods, which need to be accounted for and at least see if those seem to make a difference. But we're taking them into this whole conversation because they do manipulate proximity to failure. They do measure hypertrophy and can conceivably give us information on those outcomes um, in terms of that relationship. So those are the two main areas that kind of got brought into the equation. I think people will be a little bit less familiar with in terms of like one cohesive analysis. The velocity loss stuff has been analyzed separately, but together in concert with all this other data hasn't really been analyzed together because we haven't had a way to actually quantify RIR to give us a consistent metric across studies to actually combine. So that that those are the two areas I would say that are important to kind of outline. So one of the set types of that latter group would have been cluster sets, right? Correct. Yep. Um, and that's actually one that I was curious if you could kind of walk me through how you guys were estimating the RIR on the cluster sets. Yep, absolutely. So there's a number of assumptions that needed to be made with the alternative set structures that um, at face value are, are, are tough to tough to just kind of ignore, but there are kind of can, counteracting issues that, that that we kind of ultimately decided on that we were just going to go with what what made the, the most sense and was the simplest. So to give you an actual practical example, um, in a cluster set study, what you might have is one group that does, like I said, kind of three sets of 10 RM. So that's pretty straightforward. Hopefully they provide some sort of failure definition that we can kind of confidently say that that group is zero RAR. For the cluster set groups, specifically the difference there is that they're going to have those little interset rest periods, but they're also going to have a greater uh, intraset rest period. Uh, sorry, I flipped those. Uh, interset rest period. So every group's resting three minutes. The cluster set group gets that, but they also get to intersperse their repetitions with little mini rest periods. So basically what we had to do for the cluster set research, we looked through a lot of the acute data on cluster sets. And so basically you take one group that does um, three sets to failure with a given load, and then another group that takes the same load and uses a cluster set configuration, and you see how many repetitions they can perform. For the most part, a lot of the cluster set data is kind of remarkable in how much performance that you're able to maintain at a given load. So what we did is we basically took the mini set that the cluster set group performed. So in this case, let's say with a 10 RM, they performed, let's say, two reps. And we're saying that, that set, those two reps at a 10 RM load is a RIR, and then we're able, basically able to maintain that for the entire uh, session, basically. So obviously when you hear that, there's a number of things that come into your mind. Obviously, in, for the most part, we're gonna have set to set fatigue that's gonna decline that RIR target over time. The rate of that is gonna be dependent on the exercise, the repetition range, the initial proximity to failure, the sex of the individual, even the exercise selection. There's a lot of things that are gonna go into the rate of that set to set fatigue. On the other side of things, we also have strength gain. So a lot of the way that progressive overload is kind of targeted in these studies isn't super systematic, like a double progression or something that happens set to set or even session to session. So as you get stronger, a given load is gonna become more submaximal. So you kind of have these counteracting forces that um, could bias the RIR estimation in kind of either direction. But ultimately we're taking those mini sets, doing the best we can with the load approximation to rate the RIR of that set. 
and then making the assumption it's relatively homogeneous across all of the repetitions. That's basically the way that those were estimated. So, so the cluster set RIR was based on the conditions of, we'll say, the the first part of the cluster. Correct. Right. Yep. Okay. Because I think that's that to me that would be the one where um, most people would have questions. It's the one where I had most questions too. Because like, like if I'm performing a cluster, the first cluster, if it's like we're using your example where it would be eight reps in reserve, and then say yep. I, you know, I rest twenty seconds or whatever it is before I go again that weight is no longer an eight RR of the second yep. cluster. Like it's a yep. lower and then it's a lower or whatever. And so I was just kind of curious kind of how you guys manage that. Um, but if you're basing it off the first one, um, I mean, I can't even, this sounds like an overwhelming task that you guys were, that, that you were, you, that you're trying to do. Right. So yep. I don't want to be too critical, but that makes me, no, no, no. It's... maybe, maybe the clusters would have been, we'll say under, We'll, we'll say undervalued in terms of their proximity to failure if we were gauging them on the beginning. But it's also very hard to measure how many RIR, what's your RIR at the second one, what's it on at the third one because of all of those confounders. So you had to choose something, yeah. right? And but you're you're totally right. And I think this is just this is the the thing I've been trying to in every longer form conversation like this that's considerably more informative on how to interpret this stuff is that th this stuff is messy. Like the, the, there is no way am I out here holding to the fact that these are perfect estimations and this is the model for hypertrophy. Like, I do not believe that in the slightest. The way that I think the 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 estimation can inform us on the, with the best available data that we have, the overall directionality of the relationship that I'm relatively confident in, given just looking at the RR estimations and like reading the studies as a practitioner, I think at face value for the most part, they're in the ballpark. But you know, the way that this relationship can dip and dive depending on a variety of different things that go into constructing the model. I'm not beholden to any one single pattern related to this. And you're bringing up tons of good points that I'm not just holding a blind eye to. I completely acknowledge that all of those are relevant and all of those can bias the estimations. The hope from our end was that the way that we estimated the studies, we at least try to be wrong in a similar way for all the studies such that the bias in the overall placement of the relationship could be slightly off. But if we're off in the same direction, hopefully most of the time, and it can at least kind of still inform the trajectory and the directionality. Um, that's not a perfect by any means, obviously, but that was kind of our thinking of using kind of minimal criteria to utilize to to estimate the studies instead of using every single study possible to try to use the same similar estimation procedures to try to make the estimations as consistent as possible. But nonetheless, there are countless factors that we could go into um, to describe the issues that are associated with the estimation. So we're just trying our best given the data that we have. And, and the important thing with this is, you know, it's it's the first step. The ideal analysis here is in 10, 10 years or so when we have actual good reporting that this analysis is supposed to encourage that we can do this again and hopefully um, get considerably more confident in the overall dose-response relationship. But no, I, I completely acknowledge those limitations and they're absolutely crucial to employing this practically. And I think that's that's something that just needs to continuously be stated. So I, I think those are important to, to mention for sure. And years, dude. Everybody wants the absolute answer now. Like I've noticed. <laughs> hey, on this yeah. podcast, we are going to make the declaration, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. So I just thought that was an that would be an interesting example to go through because I think most people are familiar with cluster sets, but also like that was probably one of the more complex scenarios that you guys had to deal with as well, right? And I, th I think one thing to important to clarify, just I've noticed this. I, I come generally more from kind of like a strength background. So when I hear cluster sets, that means one thing in my mind, like 
more so in like the power kind of training world. Whereas I've noticed that some people kind of equate cluster and rest pause together um, in my mind. And so the, the, we separated those. So cluster is specifically designed to try to make a given workload farther from failure. Whereas there was one study in the analysis that was a rest pause where you're basically trying to make it closer to failure. So just just making that distinction clear if, if, if that uh, is a... Uh, can be confusing sometimes, I guess, but no, I, I agree. That's an important uh, case to bring up for sure. Yeah. That's a, that's a topic that we often actually end up discussing is, is like, where, where does something stop becoming a cluster and become yeah. a rest yeah. pause and whatever. Yep. Yep. And my, my usually say it's like, well, what is your goal? So you're trying, are you like, usually is this like, are you trying to increase the absolute loading over a given number of reps, you know, and what, you know, what degree of failure you're trying to get to and whatever it's like, as long as you're covering those things, like, don't worry about the semantics, just build it to the outcome, outcome that you want. And I think yep. that's why, you know, when it comes to these terms, you have to take it very loosely and also, Hey, you know, this is just throwing this out there. Cause this is a hot topic this week. Like, Hey, if somebody says something that is semantically slightly different than yours, maybe don't like, you know, assume that it's a direct attack on the way that you're doing <laughs> things because they may be using like similar language, but actually discussing a totally different thing. And you guys, you guys might hate each other, but actually agree on the very point that you <laughs> hate each other over, um, you know, Hong Kong, quink, quink, uh, Okay, cool. So, uh, I think, um, the next thing I'd like to get into then is kind of what, what we can take away from the different aspects of this. So if you had to say like, well, what is the most valuable thing that we're taking away from yours versus maybe what's the most valuable message that we're taking away with the previous. And I'm also curious if there's any studies in particular that stand out really well in design that you think are worth noting. Cause I mean, I'm not as familiar with the research. Like, you know, I read things and whatnot, but I haven't read every single yeah, study yep. fresh again, you know, sure. prior to this podcast. Uh, but my overwhelming feeling on all of them is it's like, man, all of these have a lot of, like there isn't, there's definitely some done more than others, mm -hmm. but I don't think we have of like a perfect, like bulletproof study where it's like, hey, we even, we have this one that's at least done really, really well where like maybe we could look at this as like the best most direct evidence i kind of look at it, it's like yeah we have a bunch of them that kind of have we'll say shortcomings in, in different ways but nothing that gets me really excited but i'm curious you 100%. know if, if if you uh think anything stands out 100 percent. i think that's a that's really good way to kind of think about it so i guess i'll start on the the initial kind of uh comparison to our analysis to maybe previous analyses so I've seen quite a bit of chatter in terms of like thinking that they suggest completely different kind of uh, conclusions. I personally don't think that's the case. If you if you go through all of the the more typical kind of uh, you know force plot standardized mean difference meta analyses on failure versus non failure, if you go back through all of them kind of in the last however many years, essentially every single standardized mean difference leans in favor of the condition training closer to failure. Now, what happens, you know, depending on how statistics are done, the results are communicated. If we're going by kind of the, you know, the null hypothesis significance testing kind of paradigm where a standardized mean difference isn't significantly greater than the other side, then those kind of nominal differences tend to get washed out. And I'm not saying whether that's a good or bad approach. It's just a different lens to view things. Um, if you're, you know, doing all the appropriate things that go into testing hypotheses such as that, it can be a totally fine approach. I think people just often kind of stop there and, and, and don't consider that 
for very, very small differences between conditions, it's going to take a significant amount of statistical power to be able to confidently detect that. So when we're looking at, you know, a 0.15 standardized mean difference between failure and non-failure, which is like a pretty small effect in terms of statistical terms, that's going to take a lot of studies to be able to confidently detect that. And ones that are going to be pretty, pretty clear in either direction, have a small amount of variance, et cetera, which just isn't the case in exercise science essentially ever. So um, that's, that's, I guess, something that I would go back through and kind of look at all those meta-analyses again and realize that although not significantly greater in most of them, the nominal differences are generally in favor of failure, which when we go to paint this out in this more kind of continuous dose-response relationship, basically agrees. So I, I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. Um, now, this is something we discussed on on the, the Revive Stronger podcast that I think is important to mention again is that ultimately whether that difference is is justifiable for you to actually complete an intervention is entirely based on your subjective kind of smallest effective interest. And that's going to be characterized by a ton of different things that ultimately determine whether A or B is correct. Just looking at a point estimate and seeing that it's greater than something else does not automatically justify that that is necessary for you to do. Um, so I think that's just important to keep in mind. In terms of weighing this type of analysis or meta-analysis in general versus some studies that we view are very, very uh, strongly able to test the question that we're interested in. I think that's a really interesting topic. Um, so I guess there's like a study we could use, for example, that I think does a really good job at like kind of isolating maybe the practical question people are kind of interested in is there's a study by Santianello and colleagues that basically is a within part participant design, which for hypertrophy is a really solid design because you're controlling for genetic factors, gen uh, different uh, training kind of leading into the study, et cetera, et cetera. It's just a really solid design. Um, one limb trained to, to failure, the other limb trained approximately two reps shot of failure. And then they looked at the differences between limbs. And I think the nominal differences were in favor of the non-failure limb. Um, and I believe it might have been non-significant in terms of the differences. I can't recall off the top of my head. So someone may see that study and say, oh, okay, this is in contradiction to the meta-analysis. I would have a few points that kind of highlight why looking at individual studies can be potentially misleading. I'm not saying necessarily misleading, but potentially in that we have a few other things that kind of coexist in this comparison that really can only be identified when we kind of aggregate studies together. So for example, in the Santianello paper, if I recall correctly, they trained the leg extension at 75% of 1RM and the leg press at 80% of 1RM. From our analysis, we know once you're starting to get up in that loading range, RAR becomes less and less meaningful. And so that's an important thing to highlight that you really can't analyze the effect of those other variables. When, you, when you're reading that study, you're just saying, okay, the load's equated, rest periods are equated, volume is equated, we're good to go. But in reality, those all of those independent variables are also going to operate on the actual comparison of interest. And so when you actually aggregate all these studies together, then we're able to see if these other factors end up integrating or actually interacting with the RIR relationship, which in the case of load, they seem to. So a lot of these within participant studies that tend to find no differences, that's kind of the direction that I'm leaning in terms of those loads are pretty heavy. And a lot of them use maximal concentric intended velocity, which I also think is an important factor that could potentially influence uh, your ability to train farther from failure and see similar outcomes. So really the only way you're going to detect the influence of those variables is through meta-analysis, which is where kind of relying on single studies can be challenging. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that that's not a, a, you know, a viable position even, and you could 
take issue with a number of the limitations of our analysis, the RR estimation, some of the subjectivities in terms of the model fitting procedures, all those kind of things. And if you want to, you know, favor that evidence for 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 those reasons, I don't think that's a completely untenable position at all. Um, I would just probably say that I have a bit less confidence taking that approach, even if at face value it seems to be a little bit more direct. The other thing specifically for hypertrophy research that I think people have a harder time kind of conceptualizing, often because it's not reported, is when we read a study for strength, and again, this is kind of where I come from for the most part, you have an intuitive sense of kind of the smallest worthwhile change related to testing somebody's 1RM, testing somebody's 10RM. You've probably done that with hundreds of people that you kind of intuitively know what's, what's if somebody improves their, their bench press in comparison between two conditions by two and a half kilos, are you really going to look at that as a difference between conditions? Even if that effect size was, you know, moderate or something that we would generally consider meaningful, you're going to look at that as a practitioner and say, eh, it's kind of a wash. For hypertrophy, that becomes very, very challenging. We, we aren't familiar with units that are, are related to hypertrophic measurements, whether that's MRI, ultrasound, whatever the instrument that you end up using. Identifying that smallest worthwhile change from a practitioner's perspective gets really challenging. And I think when you kind of layer that on top of non-significant findings or even effect sizes that lean in favor of different groups, what you would consider a win for either condition changes substantially. And so then when you layer that on top of the length of the training intervention, train individuals, what's the topic and the minutia that we're really comparing, I think you end up getting less and less results that you would consider a meaningful difference, to which from my perspective, those kind of real systematic differences across studies might only be able to be identified with just a ton of different studies where we can kind of systematically tease out some of these variables. So for a variety of reasons, I think leaning on individual studies can be potentially misleading, but not necessarily misleading. Obviously, I could be wrong about you know, favoring those versus the meta-analytic approach, especially given all the limitations that we have. But those are a few of the things that I would consider that could be potentially at play when we're kind of weighing one versus the other. Um, and so generally speaking, I would say a well-done meta-analysis that, you know, has, you know, reported everything correctly, the statistics are done appropriately, which isn't always a, a given, right? But let's say all those things are kind of checked off. I would say generally I would favor that so long as the question is able to be answered by that approach. But I think, again, a reasonable person could say, in this case, given all of the limitations associated with our approach, I'm going to value these, these specific studies that I think are more applicable to the context I'm looking to apply them. So hopefully that wasn't too long-winded, but that that's kind of the, the, the thinking I would have on that question. Yeah, because I think right now we're kind of probably at a crossroads between um, having, you know, enough qual, like have, having the quality of the studies to where they need to be, um, to take a lot from an individual study. And then also like, we don't quite have enough data to make like a really confident meta and the lower quality or the lower quality or the lower confidence, I should say, is probably a better way to put that of the studies that you have at the meta, the more of them that you would need to then be confident, right? So that, you know, I feel like we're kind of in this ambiguous place right now where we're really like, we're really waiting for, you know, maybe another, like at least like another 50% of like some really well done things to come put in there. And hopefully then that can kind of like, you know, give us that that's probably, that's probably the point where people probably will say, start taking a little bit more confident conclusion from this. Um, so the next thing that I wanted to to look at in terms of the comparison component before we 
you know, go into all the nuances is the current your your mana and the 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 previous one um, seem to be fairly similar in like the middle of your graph, right? Like that's like, and it's the two ends is where the difference is. So basically, like getting to that very very like all the way to failure, whether we're talking so like the difference between volitional and momentary muscular failure, like that you guys have this kind of non-linear increase as we're getting all the way to failure, whereas the other one has this dip down. And then on the other side, further away from failure, you guys actually tend to have like a more linear, you know, tail as you're getting further away. Um, and I think that was, uh, that was one of the criticisms that uh, Menno had in his video was that, you know, the numbers looking very far out from failure seemed to be like, like, oh, it doesn't, I, we wouldn't intuit that, you know, doing 20 reps, you know, ha yep. or having 20 reps in reserve that would be, would be that effective. And, you know, I, I would kind of, kind of agree with that. Yep. Um, so I'm curious uh, if you, if, if you've kind of looked at what is, it was a, a category of the studies that you were looking at, or were there any particular ones that really kind of changed those two ends? So why don't we just start with the, you know, all the way to failure and was there like, do you, have you looked to see like, hey, what's the data here that's really separating our signal from what the other meta had? Yeah, so I think there's a there's a few things that kind of go into this. So in terms of the actual nonlinearity of the relationship, the number one thing that I'd say is that we're literally looking at, I think it's over double the number of studies. So the the kind of the pool of studies that go into assembling this relationship is essentially entirely different. The second thing is. This is the first time RIR has ever been quantified. And I would say after I've done the, all the estimations, a lot of the studies that people assign to different RIR values in their head, when you actually systematically go through the training program and actually rate the RIR of every single set and every single exercise and every single component of the training program, including the tapers that are actually constituting to the actual RIR average, it's different than what you would expect in, in, in quite a few different cases. Um, like, for example, the, the Rupal study that recently just came out, um, I think the RER estimations included in the meta for that study are substantially different than, I think, what gets tossed around on social media in terms of the RERs that are associated with those groups, because a lot of the uh, accessory training that was performed for the, the, the muscle groups that were measured for the ultrasound was performed with three RER, and then the, the actual RERs for the actual exercises that were manipulated in the protocols had a tapering week that was extremely far from failure. So like, that's just an example where those RIR estimates and kind of how those neatly play out in their relationship are slightly different than I think what people intuit um, and ultimately can can inform the relationship. Um, in terms of the the specific differences in terms of the last meta-analysis and this one in terms of the comparison of the the failure point, I think it's the, the biggest difference here is just the criteria of what was uh, what we kind of uses our distinction between failure definitions and what the last meta-analysis did, in addition to the completely different pool of studies. Um, the last meta-analysis was, I would consider, much more of a sniper approach. They had very specific conditions for what was momentary muscular failure, what was set failure, what was non-failure, and those were very, very specifically applied to the studies that they had. Ours was a little bit more broad in that we had involuntary versus voluntary set termination. Um, and so when you look at involuntary set termination, we basically accepted any specifically defined failure definition that they clearly ex like explained what they were considering failure and it wasn't volitional. So it was concentric failure, momentary failure, 
there's there's other language in there that I can't totally remember off the top of my head, but anything that was clearly explaining what they were considering the failure definition and it wasn't volitional, that was considered involuntary set termination. Whereas anything else was considered voluntary set termination and was considered zero RAR. So that is kind of the a little bit of a different criteria, which kind of puts studies in different buckets depending on how you kind of uh, consider those. The other thing in terms of the actual curve and comparing the curves from the different studies, while I, I think it's it's a really solid way that they did it, it, it fundamentally just isn't the same type of analysis. So they're basically taking the different categorical effect sizes and qualitatively putting those on a curve in terms of their distance towards failure. But the actual position in which those lie, none of those studies were rated in terms of their RIR estimation. So we can't actually assign those in terms of a continuous relationship. So I think assigning those or like comparing those two curves just really doesn't make sense to me um, for that reason. And that's kind of the whole reason that we did this. I think within the context of that paper, I think that's an awesome way of kind of painting the nonlinear relationship that was kind of theorized based on the different categories that they had. But for example, the velocity loss estimations, those alone are kind of very different depending on the load used, the, the exercise selection, and kind of all those things that we directly rated in this analysis. So I think, again, comparing those two curves, I don't view as a super valid comparison for a lot of uh, reasons. Not to say that one is better than the other, just they're two different approaches. Um, and then in terms of the the back half of the relationship, in terms of greater than you know 10 RIR or so, that's a totally valid critique. And I think the number one kind of reason it looks that way is because there's very few studies that exist all the way out past that relationship. And so that's why in the paper, we directly in, in the text and not just tucked away in the supplementary file, uh, did a secondary analysis where we only analyzed the papers um, that had uh, an RER estimation of 10 or less. And so that basically I would say is more of a more of a standard um, way of people that would think about it. The curve is considerably less aggressive. Um, it looks very similar and the overall best fit model is very similar, but I would say it's a little bit more you know, realistic. I also would be pretty surprised that 20 RER is going to give you, you know, very similar outcomes to, you know, 12 RER or whatever, but that's just a limitation of meta regression in general when you don't have a consistent amount of data throughout the entire data set. So which is why we preemptively did that sensitivity analysis to make sure we had the estimations in there without that extremely long tail that is based on very, very few data points. Um, so that that would be kind of my answer to that is that absolutely it's a fair it's a fair criticism, but that's why we try to preemptively kind of tuck that in the paper as well to make sure that those estimations were still holding when we took out that very long tail of studies. Um, I think I hit on everything there, but let me know if I'm missing Yeah. Um, so in practice, we we find it, you know, and I think we we have we have we have actually some good evidence now on this is that it's easier to estimate RAR as we're closer to failure, um, and then it's harder as you're further away. Would do you think that there's probably a little bit of that there too, and that the studies that were just done at a higher RAR, the predictions were a little little bit more challenging or if you had to if you had to place a confidence in it your estimations are probably closer on you know we'll say like less than five versus over five I, I see what you're saying that's an interesting kind of way of thinking about it. I guess I hadn't thought about it that way so to, to be clear I think what you're specifically referring to relates to when we're using perceived RIRs. So like when you would write your RIR and I'm taking that as the RIR estimation for the study, I think there's two studies which we did that. Every one of the other studies was basically taking the configuration of the training and using other published research where people basically do reps to failure in kind of variety of different contexts, um, exercise selection, the sex, the load, et cetera. 
um, and using those relationships based on what they actually did and then estimating RAR through that. So for most of the studies, the perceived RAR is kind of avoided um, in that regard. And we're basing it on kind of to, to the, the best available evidence for those given contexts in terms of repetitions uh, performed in those, in those instances or kind of taking a guess at the capacity in those conditions, um, referencing what they actually did and then popping out the RAR estimation. So usually the, the, the confidence in terms of those would be essentially the same for if we're using all of those criteria in the same context. The one I would say that I would have the most confidence in is that the studies that said they trained to failure, I'm going to be the most confident in those because we don't have to really do any estimation at that point, right? Because the other ones we would have to use other means. But if they say, here's how we define failure, they took every single set to this point, boom, that's a zero RR estimation and I'm the most confident in those. That'd be kind of the absolute peak of the confidence and then we would have pretty much all the studies else are kind of at this level. I guess you could put subjective RER maybe one level higher than all the other studies, but that would be kind of the the hierarchy there if that makes sense. I just didn't know if one, if like if one of the factors that you were using was looking at studies where they're using, you know, a percent RM, you know, loading or whatever, is is that we end up usually having the same thing. Is is the oh yes, oh, I see reps gotcha. is gotcha. also greater gotcha. as we're working with lighter yes. loads, which would also be those there. So I'm so I'm just curious if the the yes. you know if the tools that you're using to estimate this are also becoming less accurate as we're getting into those higher because we would be at the lower percentage of so I'm just that, looking at that as there's a compounding thing going on there. No, that that's that's an excellent point. Yes, I, I'm sorry I didn't quite intuit uh, what you're saying at first, but that that's a great point. So basically, what you would be saying there is the ability to reach task failure in the conditions that we're using to reference the capacity for a given percentage of one or m, let's say, are going to be less accurate as we get lower, which will also be the, the lower RR conditions. I think that's totally, totally reasonable. And that's why another reason, probably the, the uncertainty intervals of the relationship just get way wider, the further that you go from failure. So I think all of that is theoretically conceptualized within the actual statistical model, but is that always something that people take away? Probably not. So I think all that, all those are really good points that, that I think are important to kind of uh, think about for sure. No, dude, most people just look at the picture, right? <laughs> Pretty colors, right? And, 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 and a few more of them will listen to this, but then <laughs> we'll still read the, the full study, right? So, nope, right. Um, okay, cool. Um, you know, I think I, th I think that's a probably a good, pretty good place of kind of summing up, um, you know, the difference between the studies. Like like I said, guys, he uh, he did a very good job of kind of breaking down a lot of these individual points on, on the revive. Um, so... And you, you guys got into some of the practicality and stuff uh, on there as well in terms of like looking at, you know, the different rep ranges and how like we're, if you're working in a higher rep range, it does seem to be a signal that we're working closer to failure. Um, but uh, I think what would probably be more interested us to talk about is the nuances that uh, probably aren't covered in this in terms of like different exercises, you know, and like yeah. styles of exercises. And, you know, we've posted stuff on you know, the failure point when That's, something has a short bias yep. resistance profile versus the lengthened. And yep. there's a lot of talk about the, um, you know, stimulus to fatigue ratio. And I think that is going to be a very exercise dependent thing when we're talking about training to failure. Because when, when I'm teaching training to failure in our courses, I try to get people to understand like physiologically, like what the, what, what we probably look at mechanistically in these different conditions with different exercises, and then basically getting to that task or momentary failure. 
in those things and how that would different so that they can look at the context of an exercise and be like, okay, if I take this exercise to failure within a given rep range and based off of the proximity of that exercise, where does that put me on the physiological spectrum? Because that's ultimately kind of what I'm building my my program around, like especially I'm focusing on hypertrophy, right? And I'm literally just trying to take all of these things in and just make us like, how do I get a certain volume of mechanical tension, you know, above a certain threshold? And then that's that's my best proxy probably for her hypertrophy stimulus, right? Um, cool. So you had a couple things that you wanted yeah. to say. So if you want to start, um, you know, go ahead. It's funny because literally everything you said kind of ties exactly into what I was going to ask you. So, so one thing that I, when I was going through this, and this is kind of a thought I've had a while, but I didn't really, I, consuming some of your stuff, I've been able, better able to conceptualize how to ask this question. I guess initially there was like something I, I thought might be going on, but I didn't know exactly how to state it. So I guess I can do a little bit better so now. And I guess my question for you is, I, I really enjoy kind of the some of the stuff you've posted on the different failure points that you, that you kind of mentioned. So something when I've gone through this research purely subjectively, I was initially going to put this in the meta-analysis, but then I realized I was basically just entirely subjectively determining what kind of machine they use. It was similar to something I've done. Except basically, it's just me deciding what it is on every single study subjectively, which I didn't think was going to be a great way to do it. But for the most part, exercises that expose the the muscle that is being measured for hypertrophy and particular challenging in that position seem to be also be the studies where you don't need to go quite as close to failure. So one thing I've thought about is that, you know, we typically conceptualize RAR as momentary failure all the way to, you know, infinity RAR, right? And you've done a really good job kind of showing how this point is much fuzzier than people kind of realize. It's not homogenous. It's exercise dependent. Uh, resistance profile dependent, et cetera. So I guess, to, do you feel that it's kind of, if we can expand this side of the spectrum to be like, there is an absolute physiological, the muscle cannot produce force anymore. And that occurs in XYZ conditions. And then the shortened end of the spectrum is closer to like just momentary failure where you're just arbitrarily defining the task in a certain way and you're failing there. And do you think that getting to this point is like the truest stimulus of actually being closer to failure. So that's going to be related to exercises that expose you to longer muscle lengths and exercises that are more challenging at those longer muscle lengths. And then it kind of goes backwards from there to being exposing at a shorter length and hardest at a shorter length. And you kind of get to the the more submaximal RARs. I guess that's that's something I've just kind of qualitatively looked at this and seems to be the case. The issue with that, in my opinion, again, is kind of the, from the research line of things at least, is that you have that interaction with load and so, you know, if you're loading up a, a squad or you're loading up anything that I think kind of people tend to bias in lower rep ranges, there's that interplay of that. But I know you have the the cool machines where you can kind of change that resistance profile within an exercise that you would kind of load in a certain range. So I'm just kind of curious, your kind of thoughts on that general concept of like, can we expand the proximity to failure spectrum to keep, still keep it kind of a, a linear thing, but have this muscle length and the position in which we're defining failure within the range of motion kind of tacked on to uh, the kind of momentary or task failure end of that spectrum. I, I'm just curious what you think on that. Yeah. So from a physiological perspective, the the perfect failure point would be if you could define at a given range of motion, like how much force production the muscle still had, right? So if you wanted to say like, okay, 
uh, you know, 10% out of lengthen, you know, position once we've reached, you know, we'll say 40% of the starting for like of, of a fresh, right? Like, okay, like that would be our reasonable, like we could set like what would be practical, right? Like, cause we could, you could literally be like, okay, well, we're just going to take everybody in an exercise that's designed to this to failure at a 12 rep range or whatever, and then see what that act, see how much actual force loss there is at that specific thing. Then you could potentially create like something that would be like, okay, this is kind of the ideal conditions that we're looking at. And you maybe try and model like what exercises would kind of fit into that bucket. That's probably the best thing that you could do, right? Because I mean, theoretically we're just, you know, what I'm looking at failure, it's just like, well, okay, how much force production has this muscle loss range of motion specific, right? So for comparing exercises that are challenging in the short position, like we've, I put up a video of us using like the, the prime arm curl where you can basically, you can keep the motion exactly the same, like you said, and just change the resistance, but like have the same, like it always gets challenging when you're just like, well, all right, it's the weight is the same. So at some point in time, like the, the peak torque point is the same, but the weight over the range of motion is different. So it gets kind of like, cause it's like, do you take exactly yeah. like the same force curve right. and just move it so that the area under the curve is the same, um, which is a challenge. Cause you can't just like, oh, I'm just going to take a plate and move it on the machine. You got to know a little bit more of the physics of the machine, but we try and get as close to the same like area under the curve, if you will, when we're kind of making these comparisons sure. and the thing you'll notice is that if task failure is the completion of a full rep of an exercise, if we're loading in that short position, that comes way earlier, mm. right? Uh, but then the difference is, is that once you've reached that full range failure with that load, you could then do another rep that might be like 80, 90% of the range of motion. And then you might be able to do another rep and another, you can do all these partial range of motions. Right. So the short position failure, like the full ROM might come earlier, but you have a ton of force production in that muscle okay. still at the yep. other ranges of motion. Now, if we flip that to exercises where the challenge is very length and biased, what we kind of have is, is like you get to task failure and then you kind of get like a, a little struggle partial and you're pinned, right? Yep. Like this is what happens at the bottom of a bench press or a squat or whatnot. And even some of those exercises, because of the, the strength curve of the body, even though the resistance is pretty much, you know, very biased and lengthened, mechanically, we're kind of compensating for that. So it's like some of them are not as lengthened biased as they could be. So like, you know, somebody might be able to get like halfway up on a last rep of a dumbbell press or a barbell press or whatnot. But if you get to all the way to the extreme range, pretty much when you fail, that like, that's your John stuck there, right? Yep. Um, which does take some kind of ecological validity away from like using those exercises, unless you have, you know, a, a an environment where you can do that safely, right? Yep. Uh, and I think so. I think that's a huge thing to consider. And that like, and we're not even talking about the difference between multiple joints or whatnot. It's just that, like, okay, if we're saying that you know, momentary muscular failure is when you can no longer complete this, the physiological conditions there in a muscle or in an exercise that's challenging the short versus lengthen are going to be going to be very different in a sense that if we're doing the shorten, we probably are further, significantly further away from failure in terms of physiological conditions right. at those longer muscle lengths, which 
if we're kind of seeing that that's where, you know, the hypertrophy stimulus is a little bit greater, then potentially, you know, those are the exercises for crap. Like we, like we have to go all the way to failure or maybe even beyond that, right. To, to get equal benefit in those. So that could be, you know, that, that's a huge, we'll say, uh, confounder in the data. If like one study is using exercises that like, so, I mean, like, so anything that's using like a bicep curl or something where there's no load at the bottom, right. Or if they're using uh, cable pull downs or pretty much any, any back exercise that's free weight, right. Is going to throw that type of signal in the data. And then on the other hand, you know, your free weight chest exercises and leg exercises are going to go the other way. So I don't know if you could kind of look at what you have and see if it's kind of a, a mixed bag, which would kind of like, or if there's a disproportionate amount of lengthened versus shortened stuff in there, that would be kind of interesting to yeah. know kind of what that distribution was along the studies. Cause that could give you an idea of kind of where, where your estimates are relative to the physiological conditions. Yep. Right. Um, I mean, I don't know if that completely answers. No, yeah, it's 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 an interesting topic because I think this is like I've just thought about it in terms of kind of the interplay with like some of the long muscle length stuff that you know you, you guys talked about, and you know I've talked to Milo about this a little bit as well, and just kind of the yeah, just the interplay of those two things has always kind of made me interested of like is proximity to failure a variable that's basically proximity to failure and exercise selection are both kind of trying to get us to let's get really really high tension for the muscle when it's at a very long length and high forces at that position, like are those both kind of indirectly getting to the same thing? And when we kind of look at those on an integrated relationship, does that kind of give us even more context for that kind of spectrum? Um, it's just been something I, I've, I've thought about. And then um, I guess I guess the, the other thing we were kind of talking about a little bit before we got started is just, I guess from your perspective, understanding kind of all those mechanics things and and whatnot is I, I think I've heard you talk about the kind of distinction and we talk about this a little bit in the paper and in the in the strength portion in terms of the difference between force on the whole muscle level versus the force on the fiber level is that kind of when you when you read our paper just kind of when you think about this in general is that still kind of the lens in which you view proximity to failure and how that is kind of influencing hypertrophy or is that something that's changed depending on you know, a variety of factors and whatnot. I guess I'm just curious on how you view that as somebody who I think tends to think pretty mechanistically about this stuff, kind of how you view that relationship. Yeah. Well, I mean, the goal is always to try and understand the mechanisms behind yeah. the longitudinal results as best you can. Cause if you're in the field, you have to be able to make, you know, end of one decisions. And the more we understand the mechanisms, the better we can, you know, make an end of one decision. Sure. Um, you know, uh, unfortunately, sometimes it takes a long time for us to get that. But the nice thing is, with an end of one, you literally like you're 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 ta- you're doing the scientific process at that level. So as long as like as long as you're tracking and collecting data, you know, you're you're at least able to make decisions for that one person. You just can't really take and apply that anecdote yep. to yep. to other people. Sure. Um, but in terms of the like the whole muscle versus like the individual like you know we'll say sarcomere level tension that we're going for um i that's that is the that is like the mechanism that i think is at the root of why we would benefit from training closer to failure uh it's pretty much the main the main driver behind the uh force velocity curve uh and i think it's also part i think it's also one of the main mechanisms for the benefits of training at longer muscle lengths Right. So 
if we break those up into pieces. So if I'm like a lot of people like strength and force and power, we have these different definitions yep. of what, right? Um, and so if we take the force velocity approach, right? So you can pr be producing a given amount of force, right? Um, but it won't like the amount of resistance and whatnot is going to determine the velocity of which that, you know, you end up moving it. So if as you're fatiguing, you have fewer sarcomeres that are able to contribute to that load, yep. you will still be able to move the same mass through space, but it'll just be at a slower velocity. Yep. So if we're thinking of mechanical tension, it's like, I'm looking at that as, through the lens of like, well, okay. We're now distributing the same amount of whole muscle tension, but across a smaller number of sarcomeres, which means that they're likely on average under more tension per sarcomere. So like, so that's that's the mechanical tension that seems to matter. That's where the mechanical receptors are or whatever. And so that seems like, okay, it would make sense that those would be then the conditions that would give us the larger hypertrophy stimulus is when we're getting to the point where we're able to still complete a task, but we're doing it under the conditions where it's more tension at the actual contractile unit level where those sensors are. Uh, and then the same thing for long muscle lengths. So as we're getting into the longer muscle lengths where we're able to utilize some of the passive, uh, like the passive portions have tightened a little bit more. So mm -hmm. I, a lot of people use active and passive. I, my preferred way that I kind of try and explain this is like motor and non-motor tension within. So like we have the cross bridge, which is motor driven, sure. um, but Titan has both active and passive properties. And, yeah. and then there's also the extracellular matrix and all this other stuff coming in. But essentially, if you think of it this way, let's, you know, let's say you have, you have, you have 10 sarcomeres. Okay. Um, and they're all basically holding a load. Okay the passive properties of that are going to be stretched relative to the load, regardless if the cross bridges are fully shortened or fully lengthened, right? So what we're seeing right now in terms of like the force thresholds of stuff is, is that pretty much the, the passive tissues are not going to limit the cross bridge. Like it would make sense that the cross bridge is able to overpower the passive tissues and, and not the other way around. Evolutionary, that seems to make sense. And I'm just going to be honest, some of these Titan studies are a nightmare to try and read and understand and what they're pushing, they're pushing, they're pushing my mathematical knowledge to the limit. I'll put it that way. Um, so if I get anything wrong here, I apologize. This is not like a, a finalized model. Um, I don't think anybody has one, but the way that I kind of like simplify how I see this going on is that, okay, during, as we're getting to the length and position, we're able to use more of those passive properties, especially during the eccentric, right? Part of the reason we see EMG go down in the eccentric is likely because we're actually getting to the point where instead of there being a certain amount of fibers holding the same amount of tension, we're having, again, fewer fibers relative to the whole muscle force, right? And so what we end up having is we have, you know, we'll say these fibers are using their full motor tension, but now because those passive structures are t stretched that's more actual force at the sarcomere level. And so if you combined the effect of training closer to failure and also training at the longer muscle length, you're kind of using two mechanisms to try and get to that, you know, situation where there would be a higher relative force per 
sarcomere within the muscle, right? And so mechanistically, that's kind of that's kind of how I how I look at that. And so you could make the argument that if you were doing exercises that were very length and biased, that you could get better or equal benefits from a hypertrophy perspective further away from failure than an exercise that was in the short position, but you were training like all the way to failure, right? Because you would, maybe you're getting the same amount of volume of like whole muscle work or whatnot, but in one situation, you're just not getting to the same per fiber level tension. So the magnitude of that stimulus would not be as much, right? Yeah. I mean, that's essentially like just purely conceptually, that's, I I've tend to think a similar thing. Researcher hat off, coach hat on, like that's, that's basically what I've kind of thought too, just like subjectively looking at the data, thinking about it a little bit. The the one confounder from the data is, like I said, the loading ranges that are used for the, the length and bias exercises. But now it's making me think that, you know, we got to get one of those prime machines and, and try to tease us out a little bit with, uh, you know, that, that'd be a cool study to do with basically just changing the resistance profile and then defining task failure in a specific way. And then also having both conditions also go to like physiological failure as you're kind of talking about it and kind of see what happens there. That'd be interesting. Um, yeah, no, I, I think that's, that's an interesting, um, kind of interplay between those two factors that I think kind of gives even more nuance to the, to the relationship, right. And, and kind of further caution when interpreting something that as, as we've discussed in a paper that we wrote, and there's tons of other review papers that kind of talk about how difficult it is to define failure. And I think you're adding an even additional kind of component to it with the exercise selection and their resistance profile stuff that makes it even more challenging aside from even just describing what the conditions in which you're taking a failure um even more so i think that's just another layer of caution when interpreting the overall relationship that you got to keep in mind um i guess another thing i have um just from your perspective is one thing that this kind of this project over the last couple years has made me probably become more agnostic about is just the the fatigue related aspects of things um i think it kind of depends where you kind of come up in the, in the iron game kind of how that narrative has been pitched in your mind i guess is like you know you have a camp where you know failure is kind of the default approach and like anything else is like you're not training and then you have the other approach where you take you know you know all the fatigue research etc like failure is substantially more fatiguing etc i I, I tend to come back to the fact that like initially I was very much in the camp of like leaning on the acute research of saying, you know, oh, if you go to failure, it's substantially more fatiguing, et cetera, et cetera. I've, I've think I've become more tempered in that as I've realized that the epistemic standard that we utilize for that evidence is quite literally not even remotely close to what we use for anything else. So if we only had a body of acute evidence to, to make a claim, we would never have anything that's confident. I think in this case, it's because it so strongly aligns with our subjective anecdote that it's something we just kind of take and run with. But to my knowledge, there's literally only one published longitudinal study and then also uh, my thesis data that have looked at the longitudinal aspects of fatigue in relation to different proximity to failure. And for mine, there really wasn't a difference between conditions. And then the other one, they did seem to adapt over time. So to me, when you when you kind of evaluate this relationship, if you take things at face value and say that there is an incremental difference between whatever the way that relationship looks, but there seems to be an incremental difference between, you know, failure and two, three, four RIR, it it goes from 
there's essentially no benefit here to which we analyze the cost benefit to there's there's a potential benefit here. So now the cost benefit analysis changes a little bit. And I guess I've just sat on the cost end of things and kind of tried to really think about that a little bit more. And I guess I'm just curious with your experience, like, do you think the fatigue associated with training to failure, and obviously, as we just mentioned, that's not a homogenous term, but I'm using it that way for now. The fatigue associated with that, the psychological approach to what a zero RR prescription says on the paper and kind of how you execute that. Um, how do you think all those things kind of play out over the long term? Is that is that a concern we should have? Is that something that you think we can pretty strongly adapt to and isn't as big of a limiter as some people would like to think it think it is? I guess to the, the closing thought here before I finally let you talk and not just keep rambling, um, I think there's a pretty big difference between performance decrement in the acute sense and then actually not being able to benefit from additional stimulus. I think those two things, I think people often think are the same thing and I do not think they are. Like if you train to failure, you may lose more reps at a given load, but I don't think that necessitates that you're able to benefit less from a, a stimulus, if that makes sense. So I think that's those are just a lot of thoughts I have on fatigue, and I'm just kind of curious to get your take on a lot of that stuff, the data, your experience, et cetera. So I think it's tough to put failure and fatigue as things that are always going to have a direct relationship because there's going to be so much variation between exercises and the amount of volume doing and et cetera like that. So if I, if, if we, if we go through the exercise lens first, right? So when we have what I would say are biased exercises where basically there's a muscle or a division of a muscle that has a very biased, you know, advantage in the, in the exercise. So your, your failure point is going to be extremely related to the fatigue in that specific muscle, right? That's very different in exercises where maybe now we're, you know, we're compound or the motion isn't very specific to the tissue. So at one part of the range of motion, you're leveraging one tissue and another part of the range, you're leveraging different tissue, et cetera. Um, in those conditions, now the limiter is not as well-defined and the ability to compensate is bigger. And yep. sometimes that is visually apparent and sometimes it's not. So, um, I believe listening to the, on the revive thing, you guys kind of talked about, you know, machines versus free weights. Um, and I would kind of push back on that a little bit and be like, there is an aspect to that, but it's not, it, it's still to me is more going to come down to the mechanics and what can be leveraged. Because sure. let's say you're doing a chest press versus a dumbbell press, right? Mm -hmm. Well, in a dumbbell press, you have to balance it, yep. meaning you're actually going to be limited in how much you can deviate the force production amongst the muscles because you have to maintain that certain discipline. Um, but in a chest press, well, your triceps don't care about balancing a fixed handle. So they can, you know, they, they can start to become more a part of the lift. Same thing with your deltoids and pecs and different divisions of those. Like, so you basically, because you're kind of pushing into a fixed object, you can use friction and all sorts of stuff in other directions as you're approaching fatigue. So you may have started with like, hey, you know, my pecs are doing the majority of this work, but as I'm getting closer and closer to failure, the amount that I'm able to compensate with these synergistic muscles is going up and up and up. So 
the fatigue now that you're going to get from that is going to be very different because basically now you're coordinating a whole bunch of other tissues. You're basically taking something that started off as a more isolated exercise and it's becoming more of a systemic exercise across basically every joint involved in that environment, which is one of the reasons why, you know, you can do something like a leg press and like get to the point where you're extremely systemic fatigued, right? And with a squat, especially if you're doing, you know, uh, we'll say, a, you know, not a ridiculous rep range, you, I mean, it, you can definitely get to fatigue, but maybe not quite to the same fatigue that you could with a leg press because of the leg press, well, when your quads are giving, your glutes can help a little bit more, your adductors or whatnot, or in a squat, you may actually see the point at which, okay, quads are done. Now my butt's kicking back. I could qualify that as like, all right, this is technical failure. Or I could still go, but like you can only leverage the glutes so much because at a certain point, your technique can't deviate still past the point at which you would no longer be able to balance it, right? So you have more opportunity to compensate in a squat because you can move the hips and the knees back and forth than you can in a dumbbell press because like, I mean, as soon as the dumbbell, if you're using, you know, a decent load, as soon as that starts deviating in terms of rotation or elbow flexion or whatever, all of a sudden now you're actually going to really be challenging the exercise, you know, in a different way and likely, you know, you're going to reach that failure point just via another mechanism. Um, so I think it's going to come down to a lot of like, Hey, for these exercises, how specific is the motion? How many joints are involved? And what is, what is the, what, what is the limiter to my ability to compensate in this? Right. And free weights, a lot of the times it's literally just going to be balance, you know, on a, on a lot of those things. Um, and with machines, it's going to be like, Hey, how many different ways can I push in this fixed path? Right. And still do that. So with bias, the more biased an exercise, basically the greater, the percentage of load that's being moved by the prime mover relative to the synergist. So that means that there's going to be less of a gap between once you reach a certain fatigue and that, you know, prime mover to where like the synergist could help, but in less specific muscle or less, less specific movements those synergists can get involved to a greater degree and kind of actually like we'll, we'll actually even see on surface EMG that as you're approaching failure, you'll actually see the activation in the prime mover drop off. Yep. Now you won't like if we're, if we're comparing, say like a, you know, a bicep curl, you won't see that you'll see, you'll see the activation peak at the very last set. And if you keep doing partials, it'll still be the thing because I mean, you just, you have limited options there. Um, same thing if we're doing a very specific like type of cable, like fly or press that's like very aligned with a, you know, a division, um, and you can't really use, you know, triceps to bully a cable press, you know, or, or biceps to bully a cable fly type of thing. We'll see that basically that activation stays biased towards that, but in movements that are less specific or movements where you can compensate and produce force in different directions, we'll actually tend to see that switch. So. If we're, if we're, if we're thinking of like, okay, what's that failure point, would we qualify that like some of these exercises are going beyond failure for that particular, like you're able to go past failure, meaning that you're able to go to the point where this extra, like that muscle group has now reached a point where instead of it getting like more and more relative tension, it's now on the uh, descending curve in terms of how much it's, you know, contributing. And that's probably where you would see the separation of, okay, this extra fatigue 
is no longer coming with an accompanying benefit for that tissue. But let's say you are in the, you know, you train more, you know, RP Mike Israel style where your exercise selection is designed to try and hit a whole bunch of tissue. You could take that same rationale and be like, well, actually this works in favor because instead of doing exercises for all these different muscles, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pick an exercise and I'm going to hope that the synergistic impact is enough stimulus for all of that other stuff so that I can get a lot out of a few movements. And I think there's a valid rationale for that, but you're kind of, you know, doing the Jesus take the wheel approach in terms of who's going to work, how much, like, so, you know, if your goal is just, Hey, work things hard, get bigger. Cool. But if you're trying to, if you're trying to be a little bit more informed in terms of where that stimulus was going, then I think that's a bad approach. So like, you know, once, if you, if you're getting to the point where you're trying to be specific with your physique goals, then I think that that's a very poor approach. But if you're like, yeah, you know, you're just starting out and you're just saying, Hey, you know, I'm limited in time or number of exercises, or, you know, I'm new and I'm trying to learn, you know, do some, get effort out of the fewest movements possible. You could make the argument that taking that approach there might be like the fastest way, or we'll say like the most efficient way, like to get results per set. Right. But as you become more advanced, I think those tables flip and that now you're going to need to have a more specific stimulus to continue to drive significant results. And also you're probably reaching to the point where you like, even if you're not in a physique, you know, sport, you'll notice that people tend to like, you know, they just naturally have strong and weak body parts or whatnot. And, you know, for a variety of reasons, you may want to balance that out, right? Whether that be from, you know, an orthopedic health, you know, perspective or a physique perspective, or simply the fact that like, Hey, you know, if you develop all of your strength in a certain number of tasks that may have very poor carryover to certain other tasks and you might want to have a more balanced, you know, strength, you know, across different movement patterns, et cetera, whatever. So then having that specificity, I think really pays off. So I'm, I, what I'm trying to get at without rambling on too long is, is that, you know, my approach is the best one. That's first <laughs> level you should take. Uh, and, but no, actually, cause we, we, we teach both things. It's just that like the social, like the algorithm basically filters out that the more specific exercises we do are yep. the ones that more people will see or whatnot, uh -huh. because like everybody's posted a, a dumbbell press and a dumbbell row at this point. Right. So, okay. but if I post a special cable pull down or whatever, then everybody gets, you know, all excited. Um, I think both are valid, but I think it's very important that you understand the difference in how you're applying those, but, and also understand that, you know, there's going to be a like if you're doing a very biased exercise, you're going to get very, you're going to get a very biased fatigue response. It's going to be very specific to that. And it's not going to be as global or systemic, right? If you're doing the other approach, you're going to get a larger fatigue response across more things. But the benefit in that situation is you got stimulus in other areas, right? But it may have potentially limited your stimulus in the primary area, right? Whereas in the other one, you get more stimulus in the primary area, yep. but you maybe didn't get as much of a radiant effective stimulus right and so both both approaches are valid i personally like if i'm writing a program i'd like to think like i like to have as much control over the outcome as as is possible and so i'm going to use that approach more often regardless mm -hmm. even if it's a general population or whatnot because then it's like if i'm, I'm looking outside the lens of like hey just this exercise i'm looking at well how is that fatigue, you know, spreading across the whole workout if I have multiple exercises? And then 
how do I use progressions and change mesos and whatnot? And if you're, if if you have a better of an understanding of what you're stimulating and whatnot, then yep. it's very easy then to make you know the next decisions. If you're just like, hey, do this exercise, see what happens. Cool. Now try back exercise B and let's see what happens there. I mean, you by all means you could take that approach, but my coaching philosophy is like I I like to make more informed decisions, you know, than than that. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Um, two, I guess two follow-ups slash clarifications for me just to make sure I'm spitting back what you just said. So coming back to kind of the machines versus free weights thing, I, I guess what I took back from you is that's kind of, those things are just kind of tags we can put on exercises, but the actual principle that we care about is the degree of compensation that occurs relative to the, to the muscle group we're trying to train. And that's mm-hmm. not only going to affect the stimulus, but also the fatigue that is associated with it. Is that mm-hmm. kind of accurate? Okay, cool. So, so that's interesting. I guess I hadn't thought about that in terms of like the, you know, the, the lateral forces or, or things like that, that you're potentially going to be able to produce in terms of like a machine that, and maybe I oversimplified on that on the other podcast, but that's, that's an interesting way to think about it. And I think that makes sense. Um, I guess coming back to the fatigue aspect of it. So let's say, you know, you kind of painted those two different conditions and an exercise where there can have a meaningful degree of compensation to which the fatigue tax is kind of spread uh, over greater regions. And that's going to be a little bit more systemic versus an exercise where very little compensation can occur. Maybe it's a little bit more local and I would assume a lesser absolute fatigue task. That makes perfect sense to me. I guess what I'm interested in, in your experience is at a fixed one of those. So let's say, you know, same exercise, same degree of failure, same loads, all those kind of things within an individual over time, is that something that becomes less of an issue in, in, in terms of your mind, in terms of thinking about, okay, just to put a number on it, I guess, is like this leg press to this degree of failure with this load, this rep range, this RIR, this number of sets, does that 10 units of fatigue change over time such that it gets greater, lesser, whatever kind of trends you've seen? so that you can program around that? Or is that something that you think is kind of relatively consistent as it gets stronger, loads go up, auto-regulation occurs, whatever? Is that something that you find adapts over time and is still something we need to be very, very, uh, not not to say that we don't need to be concerned about it, but I guess the calculus changes a little bit there. Is that something you think adapts? So I think the repeated bad effect applies to both, but I would say I think the stimulus to fatigue ratio favors the more bias specific exercises, especially as you get bigger and stronger. Um, you know, I think then, you know, this is interesting. I mean, right now, you know, there's, there's always, there's, there's always spats going around in the fitness industry or whatnot. And, you know, um, some of the things, you know, that I'll see is just like, there's like, oh, you know, these little guys don't train hard or whatever. And like, you know, the big guys that are on all the extra, you know, vitamin S or whatnot, or, you know, train a different way. And one of the, one of the things that I think, you know, the scientific community could benefit from is actually getting to work with more of that population being like having trained athletes that are like, you know, the normal humans like you and I, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. And then, and then working with other people that, you know, man, you know, they got two arms and they got two legs, but like, that's about all that we have in common at, at this point. Right. <laughs> Like the, the phrase I like to say is, is that, you know, like, you know, all, all lions are cats, but not all cats are lions. Right. And a lot, a lot of things change when you got guys that, you know, they're over a 25 FFMI, right. They're just, they're just huge. Right. And 
you know, there's so many things that come into like just the, the, you know, the capillarization and the ability to get blood flow in that. Right. And then all of a sudden, you know, the tissue forces and like, there's just so many things that change once you reach, you know, like kind of a, you know, pun intended critical mass, uh, <laughs> if you will. And what, what, what I've all, what I've seen anecdotally in that population too, is, is that you've seen a tremendous amount. And this is both like, even like natural bodybuilders, you know, like, like a builder Nunez is a, is a good example, right? I mean, you know, very good bodybuilder, but by, by no means like by open bodybuilding a mass monster, right? Like, you know, he's sure. not walking around, you know, at, you know, 260, 280 or whatever, yeah. right. With 22 inch arms, um, you know, they look like they're 22 in the right lighting, but you know, <laughs> sure. <laughs> but it's just, it's it, the, these guys that one, you know, they got more miles of, of you know, training on them too, but as, as they get bigger and whatnot, these exercises that are less specific just seem to have a higher fatigue cost and potentially there is a ceiling on the specific stimulus that as you're getting more and well trained is becoming like, we'll say we'll less efficient or less stale, like, like the, 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 the stimulus cap on those and the greater fatigue that you're getting from simply like, Hey, the more muscle mass you have now, if this exercise is also synergistic, that is a greater systemic load, both not, not just on the nervous system, but on the cardiovascular system from a blood flow perspective, all of that, right? Like if you have, if your whole back is bigger, using your whole back is a greater systemic demand versus, you know, if you're, you know, a nor like a, a beginning bodybuilder or whatnot, normal size or whatever, it's like, okay, cool. You know, maybe it's easier for your lungs and your heart and your kidneys and all that stuff to easily support you doing an exercise that uses half your body. But, you know, if you're, you know, big Rami, maybe doing calf raises is the same systemic, <laughs> you know, taxation, right? Because, I mean, you don't proportion, I mean, I mean, some people, unfortunately, you know, do get some negative, uh, we'll say like internal organ, you know, hypertrophy and stuff like that. But like you, the, the rest of your body does not adapt proportionately to when you start adding super physiological muscle onto your frame. And I think that's a big difference between, mm. you know, the very genetically and the enhanced relative to most other people is, is like what, you know, it, it's, it's just a different world when we're talking about like, Hey, this person is now doing this with loads and tissue that is kind of below beyond what we're kind of biologically evolved to, you know, at this point or whatnot. Like, so a lot, I would say like some of the rules start to change. And I think that's where the argument of like, oh, hey, you know, this isn't really reflected in the research. Like, okay, we use trained subjects or whatever that could squat double body weight. And I'm yeah. like, okay, that's, yeah. that's cool. Right. But I've also watched guys squat, you know, like th that same population, I've also watched guys do like 25 reps with those persons, one RM PR, right. You know, with short rest intervals or whatnot. And it's just yeah. like, okay, this is a totally, a totally different thing. I mean, one of the like interesting things sometimes is like when you work with that population, like the amount of fluid shift that can happen within a set. And then the amount that can happen, like, you know, over the course of a session, and stuff like that, like it would, even just simply like keeping that tissue hydrated when you have that much or seeing the amount that blood flow can shift. Like, you know, when you have that much muscle mass, it's, it's pretty like it's different doing like an upper lower body superset mm -hmm. when you're big and strong versus when you're a general population person. Like one of the things that we will cover in our courses is like, look, actually, some of the most insane workouts on paper are actually great for general population 
because they're just limited on how much output that they can put in, mm -hmm. right? They don't have the neurological efficiency. So even though they reach failure, they're not able to recruit as many motor units and whatnot. So failure for them is not failure what it is for a more trained individual at a big one. But I'm like, look, this, you shouldn't look at these like super complex, you know, or very difficult rep schemas and things like that as necessarily like these are for advanced people. It should be like, you should look at for what they give, because if you could give these programs to people that are relatively new and they might enjoy the hell out of them. Right. And it might be a good way to overcome the fact that they just can't get as much out of a single yeah. set. And then if you give that same program to somebody that's huge and advanced, you may be it, you may burner them, right? Like, like that it's just, it's, it's very interesting that once you reach a certain level of strength and mass, like it's almost that it, like it flips and like, okay, actually now a lot of, a lot of what I'm doing as a coach is trying to find ways to limit fatigue. And, a, at least anecdotally, a big part of that has been using more of these biased exercises, right? So that we can be more precise with the stimulus and limit the fatigue because the systemic fatigue that you can get when you're just that big and that strong, you, you know, it's just disproportionately high, um, at least in my experience. Right. Interesting. Okay. So it sounds like to me, you know, obviously from a program perspective, it's, it's been clear throughout this conversation, how many different levers we can pull. Right. Um, so it sounds like to me, from your perspective, you know, let's take an individual intermediate stage. And as we kind of transverse and as they get more advanced, um, Obviously, fatigue management is is an important part to program design. That's that's not what I'm trying to disregard. But it sounds like to me what you would prefer in most cases, probably subject dependent, is instead of pulling the proximity to failure lever in terms of manipulating that wildly different for super well trained individuals, we're going to go to other means for fatigue management, whether that be exercise selection predominantly, as I think you mentioned. I'm sure volume is part of that equation for you as well to some capacity. Um, is that accurate, or is that um, I guess maybe if you were if you were working with an individual that already is a very biased program to start as they get more advanced, are we still going to move that proximity to failure um, kind of lever to to manage fatigue at all, or is that something you generally are going to keep pretty consistent for the principles of hypertrophy essentially at all times? I'm still going to pull that lever, but I think where you decide to pull that lever mm -hmm. becomes more important, right? So, so. In a beginner, you have more options sure. of where where you can pull that lever, right? Like, sure, you can, you can make people do a tremendous number of very hard things, right? And as somebody gets stronger and more advanced, not only does the stimulus need to be more specific, so in terms of achieving your goal, but from a fatigue management perspective, there's also, I would say, fewer options on the table that have a good, like, cost-to-benefit ratio to pull that lever. So... If you still want to incorporate, you know, squats just for the sake of squats or whatnot, yeah, that might not be the place where I pull that lever, right? It's especially like, it's kind of weird because for, for something like a squat, I'd say it's almost kind of like, uh, it's not necessarily the best thing for a beginner to work that hard because, you know, there's the coordination demand yeah. or whatnot, but for the intermediate, it might be a great place. But then again, once you become advanced, then I'll, then it kind of, you know, then the fatigue component. Sure. So the skill component is the limiter for the beginner and the fatigue component is the limiter for the advanced person. But for the immediate intermediate person, that might be actually like, that's kind of the sweet spot where cool, you can do squats and you can train them, you know, close or, you know, to, you know, volitional or technical failure. But 
once you reach a certain kind of loading and whatnot, you're probably going to start to see that that stimulus to fatigue ratio starts to become disproportionately worse than exercises like a hack squat or a pendulum that offer a little bit more stability and a little more isolated limiter to the quadriceps. Sure. Okay. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes sense to me. It's kind of similar to how I think about it is basically in concept, it, it is more fatiguing. We probably want to keep our our uh, our training there for the most times in terms of like an overarching principle. There's probably like a sweet spot that we want to try to maximize the stimulus within. And then on the individual level, whether that's because they're super strong, they have a very high degree of compensation for a given exercise as to the way they complete the task or whatever the reason may be, once the individual has presented you evidence that this is an inefficient exercise for whatever the the, the goal may be, and maybe reaching that is is one of the one of the criteria for that is then probably make some pull some levers, make some adjustments, and I think a heavy squat is a good example there. Like especially if you're lifting heavy loads, that from our analysis doesn't seem to be necessary to maximize the stimulus in the first place. But even if you're lifting a moderate load, that may not be the exercise that is going to allow you to maximize the training stress within that kind of window across the entire session, mesocycle, et cetera. So. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. It's just interesting to hear your uh, kind of the way you think about it. So that's cool. So the the other thing I think that's worth laying on that, let me know if we're getting short on time here. No, we're good. Uh, is then uh, not just which exercises, but where within the workout that you choose to pull that lever, I think is another important thing to consider. Sure. Um, you know, so, some people like to take the approach of, all right, they're going to look at it as like, okay, my first set is where I'm the freshest and I'm going to be able to perform the best. And they'll take that set to failure and then have like sets of diminishing performance afterwards. That's not the model I like. I actually like to have like the last set of an exercise be the one to that. Um, I think that, I think especially if we're talking about strength, that's for, that's for sure. Like, I don't think there's any argument that that if you were going to include failure training and your goal was also strength that that's the way that you would go because your average loading would be much higher versus just having like one exposure, maybe at a, at a, at a higher loading. Um, but I think if we're looking at volume of stimulus in every proxy way that I've kind of been able to look at, you know, the variables, um, it seems that placing that failure towards the end, you're able to get a higher volume of stimulus. If I'm, whether I'm trying to calculate like effective reps, you know, or relative volume load, et cetera, all of those seem to come out in favor of kind of like having, you know, your last set be the highest effort set. Um, and I don't know if, you know, if you agree with that or whatnot, but that's, I, I think, especially in real world practice, um, I, that seems to play out better. Uh, but also I would say, Per our previous topic, in the exercises where there is more opportunity for compensation and stuff, this becomes even more apparent. Mm -hmm. And then if you're using like non-traditional set methods, then also like, like say you're doing supersets, for example, right? Um, you know, or pre-exhaust and post-exhaust and all those methods, knowing where to pull the lever, not just, you know on the last set, but like, Hey, if you're supersetting two exercises, are you doing a pre-exhaust or post-exhaust knowing like, okay, just because it's a pre-exhaust or post-exhaust doesn't mean the first thing has to always be all the way to failure, right? With the second thing or, or, or whatnot. I think understanding kind of how to pull those levers or whatnot is, you know, is useful. Uh, 
Mike Guzzatillo and I, I think our first uh, debate was actually on, it wasn't supposed to be on this. It was supposed to be a biomechanics talk. And then we ended up talking like an hour of the difference between pre and post exhausting, you know, leg extension versus squat. And a big part of my argument is, is like that if you did the leg extension first, right, you're, you're, you're going to want to compensate yeah. in the squat. Mm-hmm. And the squat offers a tremendous degree of compensation. And we know that if we pre-exhaust something and then go into a compound, that we tend to see less activation and, you know, from that. So, like, it's like, okay, if we're looking at two of those type of exercises, like, hmm, maybe it makes sense to put the squat first. And then it's like, well, if your goal is, you know, you're doing this just for the quads, you don't have to take the squat all the way to failure because you have the leg extension. So that could be like the perfect way of saying, hey, I'm going to train this leg extension and I'm going to be very disciplined on the technical failure point from that, right? I'm not going to, I'm not going to try and push the lever here. I'm going to make sure that like on this, my squats are absolutely perfect and they're doing what I want. Cause then I can go to the leg extension and not have to worry about that compensation and know that now I'm going to get a great return on the effort and pushing that lever closer to failure there. And I'm still going to get that cumulative benefit of doing the squat motor pattern. It's just that I'm going to be able to get a better physiological stimulus in the quad specifically without now adding in the, you know, systemic fatigue and the lumbar and the glutes and the compensation and all that stuff. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes perfect sense to me as well. I, I view it very similarly. Like, I guess to me, the the thing from like a theoretical perspective that I'm trying to do in my head is like, like I was saying, there's the optimization problem that you're trying to solve for the individual that's going to maximize the the stimulus within this window that we've predefined as kind of the most efficient window for training stress. The the point, the piece of it that you're layering onto it that makes that even more specific is that that's not just like a general concept. Like that is tissue specific. So that when we layer that onto it even more, the example that you're kind of giving is, is in my experience, accurate in terms of like, if I was to go balls to the wall on a leg extension for a squat, that's basically going to become a good morning after, after that, in terms of the, you know, the, where you're going to want to compensate that load. Um, and so that, that training stress that's optimized within that window may be better accomplished by performing the squat slightly submaximally to not distribute that load elsewhere and then go into the leg extension and then in a more, um, I guess, pre-constrained parameters, being able to push that all the way to um, the point of failure that you want with very little compensation. So I think that makes perfect sense to me. And that's how I think about it, even from the, okay, how should we program RAR within an exercise um, to kind of optimize that that kind of concept? I think, yeah, I, th- I think it's just, uh, it's dependent on the exercise, depending on the loading range, et cetera. Because for example, like if you're pressing, if you're bench pressing, for example, and you're doing s- sets of, you know, five, or even just lower repetitions, I think the the proximity to failure you can get away with with minimal performance declines uh, set to set is very different than if you're doing sets of 30. Um, so that's a, that's another layer onto that conversation, I feel like, in, in, in addition to just the degree of compensation that you can get within a given exercise. So I think that matters as well. Um, but I would tend to favor kind of the last set seems to make sense to me as well, where you're going to be able to maximize the, the training, the high-quality, high-performance training within that kind of uh, RAR window that's that's would be at least right now the kind of the position that I take um and then for strength I agree the kind of the the from at least from our analysis the hypertrophy and strength relationships are very different and I think that's because in one end kind of with the mechanism stuff at least the way that I currently think about it researcher hat off coach hat on and is the kind of the 
the, when one case we're trying to maximize that per five retention and the other case we're trying to maximize the whole muscle force and from strength whatever is going to allow us to do that which is basically lift the heaviest load possible with minimal intraset fatigue that's what's kind of going to help us do that but for hypertrophy it's going to be the exact opposite so um so yeah that's that's basically how i i tend to think about it as well and it's interesting to hear just the the you know i i i think i've I think me and a lot of people have been elucidated to some of the nuances of exercise selection that you've kind of really, really brought up. And it's, it's good to talk through some of the stuff that makes it a little bit more complicated. I think meets the eye initially. Mm -hmm. Now, from a research perspective, pretty much everything is done as everybody is either doing all of their work, you know, at a certain distance from failure or all of the work to failure. And I would say in practice, like in the field, it's, it's actually, we'll say, th those would be the two minority yeah. like conditions, yeah. right? Like mm -hmm. very few people are taking every set to failure, mm -hmm. um, and the majority of people that think they are aren't, yeah. right? Which which is funny, right? Like it's it's especially as you become more advanced. I, I you know I think there's um you know when somebody is a beginner, right, and even an intermediate, like in, and especially like if they're using more traditional exercise or whatnot, like the the things that cause you to reach failure. Are, are just different, right? Like versus like when you become more advanced and you have really, really good exercise selection and whatnot, like man, training all the way to failure on like a really good exercise with a great resistance profile and pretty much it doesn't give you the ability to to compensate or anything and you're very mm -hmm. safe. Like, man, you can do so much work. So a lot of the people that think they're doing all of their sets to failure, I mean, who knows? Maybe they are getting to the point where it is legit zero RIR. But I think there's like kind of some sway between like the physiological conditions that are happening at zero RAR and one person's conditions versus sure. versus another. Um, but anyway, back on track. Uh, in most people, probably train some sets further away from failure, and some sets close. They like very like I know some people will program and they'll try and maintain a linear RIR. So basically, like you'll you'll decrease load or reps over sets. Um, and that seems to be more common in the strength community where you're basically just trying to maintain a, you know, uh, a static, uh, RIR. Sure. Uh, I think in the hypertrophy realm, most people probably have an, a, like a descending RIR, meaning that like, you know, their first set, you know, three, two, one, zero. Yeah. Something like that. Um, you know, or they're just like, Hey, I just have, I just have a top set. Right. Or have work sets or whatever, but yeah. you know, and, and maybe they're not calculating the RRI, RIR of those uh, work sets, but what's likely happening is that RIR is getting lower and lower, yep. you know, set by set anyway, or whatever. So even if like, you know, they're not technically calculating it as like a three, two, one or whatever, it's, it's happening, you know, on it, you know, unconsciously. Sure. Um, and we really don't have any representation of that methodology in the research that I'm aware of. Right. Like we don't, I like, I, so my, my, my master's thesis has taken this approach that's yet to be published. It's, it's, it's in the met, it's in the meta-analysis, but we still haven't, um, actually got around to publishing that data. So basically we had, um, for the results that were relevant to the meta-analysis, we had one group that trained at a perceived, so not an objectively defined, but a subjective, uh, four to six RP, which is four to six RAR, one group that trained at a seven to nine. Uh, RPU, which is a one to three RER, and then the last group did most of their sets one to three RER in the last set, all the way to momentary failure. Now, the the big caveat with that that will be very clearly elucidated in the paper is due to the pandemic, we had some 
just not ideal issues that would go on for the hypertrophy measurements. So I don't have a ton of confidence in that as a hypertrophy study, unfortunately. Um, obviously, it's still it's still data. We're still going to report it. It was still included in the meta-analysis, and I still think it's useful. But the the uh, confidence I would have in that is is just based on the uncertainty uh, intervals on the on all the estimates are just extremely wide um, due to probably some of the logistical issues that we ran into. So I think that's uh, it's it's there. It's just not something I would be super super confident in if that makes sense. But I think I think I think I agree with you in the sense that that is probably what we need to head in the direction of like these I, and I think there's there's a few different things in terms of like research that I want to see moving forward in terms of like very ecologically valid questions is the other thing I was going to ask you is just where do you put volume on the hierarchy of importance here in terms of you know one study I think needs to be done is looking at a not volume equated kind of condition to kind of support the two quote-unquote camps that people kind of find themselves in right like the lower volume, lower to moderate volume, like not like two sets per week or whatever that some of the studies that kind of try to look at this question do, but a low to moderate volume taking pretty much every set to to, to failure versus a moderate to high volume and, and, and submaximal RIRs. I think that's a study that would be really important to kind of see how that thing shakes out in addition to some of the things that you're mentioning where we take more ecologically valid approaches to non-homogenous uh, RIR uh, recommend or prescriptions. So you know, a condition that, you know, maybe lets their RIRs fall, but they start them a bit higher versus one that lets them fall and they get to failure, or maybe one that reverses the order of the RIR prescription. There's a ton of different ways that you could do it. But like you said, we're not representing um, necessarily the way that people do it in practice in terms of, okay, every single set is at four RIR. Like, that's probably not how things are going to go. And then the other thing, just from a practical kind of observation perspective too, I think people often forget is some of the, some of the and this is a question that I still don't know the answer to in terms of one of the one of the indirect questions I had with doing this is like what what are we allowed to count as a hard set like what is that like what is what's that cutoff I think people have kind of arbitrarily decided for for RIR is the kind of the cutoff but to my knowledge that's based on essentially zero evidence I'm not saying it's not a good or bad practical cutoff but just from an evidence perspective I don't think that's really based on anything um, and I still don't really know the answer. And that's you so saw when you have some of these people that are of a lower volume to failure kind of approach, if they're doing warmups on the way up to that, presumably there's a few sets in there that probably count to some capacity. So I think that's also something to kind of take into account with the RER prescription is that I did one set to failure. It's like, well, not really, because you did a few warmups that probably crossed somewhere within the reasonable RER spectrum that led up to that as well, that count for both the volume, but also the non-homogenous RER kind of thing that you're getting at. So it's it's tough. It's tough. There's a lot of things that probably aren't represented adequately in the research that make it even more challenging from a practical perspective. But yeah, that's definitely definitely one that I've noticed as well. Yeah, I I think I've seen like people loosely tying the like the four IR ish or whatever number to like, hey, in this study, that's where they worked and they got hypertrophy. Like mm. just just noting that like, okay, we do have proof of concept that if you're here, you are making, you know. No, I, th I think it's respectable. Twenty-three RR. Yeah, that's what. Right. That's what. <laughs> um, but uh, let me know if I forget to touch on any of those points. But one of the one of the reasons that uh, I brought up the fact that what we tend to do is you know ha like lead up to a peak RIR, sure. and uh, and that I don't favor the approach of starting with you know the set to failure. Sure, is potentially by comparing all the sets to failure 
and then all the sets to the you know some arbitrary RAR uh, is is that we're we're kind of losing the signal for the benefits of training to failure by basically having all the sets being to failure instead of like having that method where we would actually be able to like okay maybe working up to failure or having you know one, half of the sets to failure in a way that it doesn't like you're not having well okay we took the first set to failure and now there's going to be a huge diminishing return in those subsequent sets mm -hmm. right uh the essentially the benefit of the first set is being lost by the fatigue sure. of the subsequent sets sure. and that's one of the reasons that maybe you know somebody's anecdote may not align with the research is because their methodology of applying this is very different than sure. what's in the research um so that that that's a potential thing that i think could be like if i'm just speaking you know all of my anecdotes and looking at the mechanisms sure. i would be like yeah potentially if we're trying to do same volume or whatever if a group was starting and doing that i i might perceive that while maybe that first set was very stimulating, their overall stimulus across sets, you know, especially with, with, the, with the fatigue cost, is being compromised by doing the all or nothing approach to failure and leading with that versus if we were to take a more ecologically valid, you know, approach of saying, hey, you know, all right, what we're going to do, like, we're going to do four work sets, right? And we're going to ascend up to a set of, you know, momentary failure that to me probably would actually result in a better volume of stimulus because your performance in those earlier sets is going to be better because I don't think that, you know, I think that, you know, if we look at the proximity to failure, there probably is a per, like a, a per fiber level thing. If it trends along with the force velocity curve, if that mechanism plays out, yes. But the caveat is if you take that principle but then you layered across a lower performance, that principle is being applied to a smaller amount of tissue, right? So less, so it's like, okay, we're still getting higher fiber per tissue by going closer to failure, but where you're hitting a smaller number of well, fibers absolutely. under those conditions, because you're doing it under lower loading or, you know, lower volume conditions, right? So I, we have to take into account that like, hey, this is this principle means that we might be getting more stimulus per fiber, but we also still need to be concerned about how many more fibers are active during that time, right? Because if we're trying to grow a whole muscle, we're not. It's not just like, hey, we're if we got this one fiber to get big, cool. Like, no, we need a whole. We need as many fibers as possible to be exposed to those conditions. So this is where then looking at, hey, how do I actually get those conditions in a way where my actual like volume of loading is also going to be greater. So I'd be curious because most of this stuff is, it's either set or rep mat or whatnot, um, you know, and I'm curious how much of a drop off of performance we're looking at in those, you know, failure things versus the non-failure. Because I imagine that the you're able to maintain the loading a lot better in the sub-maximal groups than you are in the all-out failure groups, right? If, if not, yeah. then I would just question on, whether or not they're actually going to failure or, right. you know, what right. kind of, what kind of creatine they're taking. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, that's a, it's an interesting question. Like, I guess to me from like, again, practitioner hat on of like how I would assess this from like a prescription standpoint, to me, the evidence you're looking for there is like, okay, what actually happens when this person does this? 
because to me, to me, there's so many different reasons you could speculate why performance tanks after a set to failure. That I, that's that's why I kind of said like as far as the fatigue related stuff, I am totally open to the possibility that what you just described is like a purely a neuromuscular fatigue related event. I just think I remain agnostic on that point relative to like the scientific evidence. But from my perspective, from from my coaching experience, my training experience, like there's a whole lot of reasons like their performance could be negatively impacted from that initial set to failure, whether that's just the psychological ability to tolerate that for multiple sets, whether that's neuromuscular fatigue related, whether that's some technique decay related reason, like there's a lot of reasons that 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 stimulus could be impacted set to set. And so I think the from a practical perspective, it's like, first, does that does that seem to be a meaningful problem? And if it does, which does seem to be the case from the research that we do have, I can't recall a study that auto-regulates the load like an acute fatigue study where they they fix the repetition range and they fix the RIR and then they see what happens to the load. I can't recall a study that does that, but pretty much every study that fixes the RIR fixes the load they're lifting and allows the repetitions to manifest. That shows a, obviously a meaningful, uh, you know, a meaningfully greater reduction in repetitions for failure versus the submaximal conditions. So if that's what you're using as kind of the performance proxy, and saying that, like you're saying from the the theoretical mechanism, is that you're kind of starting that mechanical tension recipe from a lower absolute point. It doesn't matter that in a relative sense, you're still getting higher. You still have to consider the absolute difference there, which is important for that overall kind of per session total. So that I, I tend to agree with that. I, I don't, I, it's tough when you kind of fit in some of the, the uh, intensity technique stuff and kind of how does that kind of play, play in, into that role there? Because obviously a really low rest period set configuration where you're kind of doing a similar thing seems to be um, pretty effective from the the research end of things. Um, and I am of the opinion, at least somewhat tentatively, is because the the reason there is that if failure is literally impacting your ability to tolerate that fatigue or actually reach that point, which is conceivable, then then it's going to have negative implications. But if you're super well-trained or the exercise is favorable, the loading condition is favorable, the rest periods are long enough, those kind of things, then maybe you can still reach that point. And the, the, although the absolute load you're lifting is less, maybe that is outweighed by the relative increase in the, in the stimulus. But I don't know. There's a lot of unformed final opinions I have there, but I, 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 the framework and what you're thinking of it is very similar to how I think about it in terms of the optimization problem that we're kind of trying to construct. Um, it's just evaluating what actually happens on the individual level in terms of the fatigue when they reach that. Because another example is somebody that is sniffing ammonia, running around the gym, throwing super loud music on, and then taking a set to failure, like it's part of their ethos almost as a, as a lifter. I think the the performance decrement you're going to see from a set like that is very different than this just another Monday where I'm doing dumbbell bench and I'm going to take it to zero RR and I'm going to put my Taylor Swift in my headphones and kind of take it to that point, right? So I think that, and that's that's like I'm saying, it's kind of dependent on kind of the way that you came up in the narrative surrounding this in terms of the the fatigue that I think it kind of is associated with that. So I think there's a lot of inputs there, and I don't think I said anything that's like a declarative, unfortunately, but I, I think I, I definitely agree with the framework in which you're evaluating the, the costs and the benefits, and then it's just ultimately how does that manifest on the individual level to actually make those calls from a programming perspective, and it's that's an, that's an interesting question. The, the load... The load reduction thing is that's that's an interesting kind of uh, another acute study design. If any anybody's listening, and do some studies. You know, there's two right there. <laughs> so the the other the other thing was the uh, 
the relationship between uh, effort and volume, right? Like mm-hmm. the camp yep. of so yep. so. If there is a benefit of training closer to failure, can we compensate that? Compensate yep. for that with more volume? Um, and I think that the way I, the way I look at this is is that there's a diminishing return in both directions, and then you basically have this like you have this spot you could play with in between, right? Sure. Um, you know, and I think I I think you know for most people that are objective with the evidence that we have and have some sort of in the field experience, this tends to be where they land of like, yeah, okay. You know, some people can do fewer sets closer to failure and other people can do, you know, more sets further away from failure, but there's a diminishing, like there's a diminishing level of returns. Like you can only do so much work so close to failure. It just like the performance drop-offs just become ridiculous where to like, it's very hard to intuit that once you reach a certain level of performance that it's still in any way productive yeah. or has a cost benefit ratio uh, at that point in time. And at the same time, on the other end of the spectrum, like, you know, how low intensity are you going to go, right? You're mm-hmm. going to go on a walk for your quads, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, you get 10,000 reps a day, like or take it up to 20,000. You'd like, you know, it's very low, it's very far away from failure, but look how many reps you're getting. Um, so there's, there's, there's obviously got to be a point of diminishing returns on the other end as well. So I think basically, as long as you don't take either extreme too far, yeah. basically you have, you have room to play with an individualized to the client, what's appropriate for the exercises that you're doing. Right. Um, you know, and then just the logistics of your program design and whatnot. Right. I mean, you know, a, a lot of programming decisions in the real world are not based off of the physiological limitations, yeah, so just but the practical. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, yeah, if you have to get more work done in less time, guess what? You're going to work harder in that time. That's just yep. the way it is. Um, yep. but you know, for body composition people, sometimes I'm like, look, actually maybe some inefficiency in the, like for a lot of people, this might be the only structured activity that they get. Sure. Writing a program that's somewhat inefficient, like in terms of like, Hey, this is, you know, if I was trying to get the most out of energy expended, this wouldn't be the way that I'd do it. But that actually might be like, Hey, actually for them, that's kind of maybe what's actually useful for them. Right. I mean, not that like you should be looking at your resistance training through a calorie lens. I got you though. Um, but that person might actually benefit by having a little bit more set volume or maybe being able to incorporate a few more movement patterns and stuff for a variety of reasons beyond like what's max hypertrophy efficiency, bro. Sure. Right. (laughs) So, um, so I think the, I think it's nice that we have that flexibility. Um, but I know people want just a solid, like, give me just one way to do it. Sure. Um, you know, but they only want that until it's no longer convenient to do that. And then they realize having the flexibility is great. So I think there's definitely some population biases to like one way or another and what they want. And it's interesting to see how through people's careers, their training age and, you know, what their profession is, how some of the, how their outlook on whether or not they want a rigid or flexible answer to these questions kind of changes. Like for some people like, oh, I want to know exactly what to do. And other people like, oh, I'm so glad that I don't only have to do it that way. Yeah. You know? That's, that's, yeah, incredible. That's, that's hundred percent agree with that. Understanding the, uh, the principle is only, only useful when you actually need to use it when you're, when you're, uh, you know, just looking for the optimal answer and that's all you think there's, that's to the story then. You just want the, you know, just give me the T and C right there at the end of it and run with that. So, yeah, I agree. Sure. <laughs> awesome. Well, I think this is a good place to kind of wrap it up. Um, 
And uh, so there's two things that I like to do here. Uh, one is going to be uh, just kind of summarizing like, hey, what is your like, hey, we're not like the scientific evidence, you know, we, we can't make a really hard conclusion either way. I think like pretty much what I just said is probably the closest that, you know, we can get. You had a pretty good summary. I think very similar uh, on the Revive podcast is whatnot. But if you just want to kind of like recap, like, hey, here's how I'm actually Here's how today, here's how I would put this stuff uh, into practice. Um, and then the last part, everybody's favorite, is going to be the come at me bro thing where like, you know, so think of sure. something good. Cool. All right. So for the, for the kind of, yeah, the practical summary, I would say, you know, purely from the, from the analysis perspective and what I think we can say from the research, I think we can tentatively conclude if you accept all the premises of our analysis, which, you know, like I said, went to great, probably annoying detail in the, in the other podcast about how the analysis has as many limitations. But if you get on board with all those, I would say relatively evidence suggests for hypertrophy that training closer to failure is going to give you a greater per set yield theoretically. And then from an actual practical program perspective, I think this potentially moves the kind of the, the optimal stress window a little bit closer to failure to which the optimization problem kind of occurs where we take in all the factors that we just spent the last couple hours talking about exercise selection goal of the client, the loading range, the degree of compensation for the exercise selection, the actual tissue that you're trying to direct the stimulus towards, how many sets are you doing, what's the actual RR prescription look like to actually optimize that curve. There's so many different things that are actually going to end up what you're going to write down on a piece of paper. But the principle is on paper, there's at least a theoretical benefit to training closer to failure for which that optimization problem can kind of occur through that framework. So I think that's where I would kind of start from the, from the actual conclusions from the evidence cool awesome i mean i'm pretty much agree across the board and i already kind of gave my summary but you know um the one thing that i would highlight is is that don't try never solve a problem with a single variable right like i so and i think that's when that's i think i think that's the biggest uh problem with some of these conversations right is every like everybody's trying to look at one variable as this like in isolation and you're never going to, you're never going to, one, the research is never going to be that clean, nope. right? Because we can only isolate so much. Sure. Uh, and and two, like in the real world, we're never going to be able to apply things and blanket it. It's just like, okay, it's always this. It's always going to be on a scale relative to the, to the other, to the other variables. So um, I think if you get in the mindset of understanding that all of these things just work in an algorithm towards stimulus. And there's a failure lever you can pull. There's a volume lever you can pull. There's exercise selection. There's range of motion, right? There's all of these levers that you can pull. At the end of the day, you just need to make all of that sum up to as much stimulus as efficiently as you can with hopefully, you know, minimizing any unneeded fatigue as you can, right? But in certain situations, pulling on one lever may make way more sense than than, than pulling on another. And I think most, like this is what, this is what makes coaching, like I would say, one interesting, but also a valuable thing to the client. Because if we could just look at these, like if we could just, if client signs up for a gym and we just give them a, a, a list of rules, right? Well, then that could, what do they need a coach for, right? It's just like, yeah. hey, okay, go, here's the five exercises that you do. Do them till like your eyeballs are popping out of your head, right? You know, take your two scoops of, you know, your, your protein, your creatine and you know, drink your water and then do it again, right? Over and over and over, like whatever for the magic number of sets and whatnot. 
and you know but that's just that's just not the reality yeah. uh that we're that we're ever going to be in um so okay so the last thing uh which i always like here is is the like the you know hey it's your first time on you got to do it come at me bro <laughs> uh like I, I think i mean honestly this is this is i think this is what the industry needs more of or whatever is like hey you know what is the biggest criticism or challenge to any of the things that uh, that you've seen from myself or or and what? Man, I mean, first and foremost, this is not my strong suit. I think, uh, and that's probably a cop out to some degree. I think we all have strengths and weaknesses, and also things that lead us to communicate in the way that we do. And I'm and I'm speaking this from from my perspective as well. I think that's ultimately maybe a benefit in some ways, like. I think it's easy it's easy to have multiple people that communicate information online or try to get principles um, to critique one another in the way that they communicate. But in reality, I think that so to some degree that's actually a benefit because I think people receive information in different ways. So I think to some degree, like even even the premise of questioning how someone does things is something I don't even know if I get on board with because. Although I, as a person with a subjective lens and the way that I interpret and communicate information, may not do things the same way that you do, that doesn't mean that my way is going to get to everyone, right? And if the ultimate goal of communicating stuff on online and, and, and in the industry is to get people information that we think is going to help them be successful, I would be a hypocrite to to initially, you know, to to critique anybody's way of communicating. Now, I assume that's not a sufficient answer, and I'm not going to just roll with that cop out. I guess the only thing I would say just as a broad kind of sweeping thing for the industry, just for everybody, and, and maybe maybe this somewhat applies to what I've seen, but again, I, I would underline my previous statement again, uh, is just I'm, I'm just not a conflict person in general. And I think if we kind of evaluate the importance of the things we're discussing in general, it kind of just gets dumb to argue i don't know I, I we're talking about lifting weights we all enjoy this we we have fun and we're trying to get to the truth as best we can so like arguments in general seem, seems kind of silly to me so i'm not saying that you're seeking that out by any means i'm sure that you're not it's but i think just as a general principle for most people in which there seems to be potentially emotional disagreements seeking like communion and trying to initially set up a conversation between those people to talk it out as best you can. I think it's just like a good general principle. And so when things spill over onto arguments and subtweets and things like that, it just seems, I don't know. It just, it, I just, this doesn't make me uh, feel warm and fuzzy inside. Right. I think most things can probably be solved over, you know, a good conversation, two people being honest in a, in a cold drink, I think, but most things can be solved, but unfortunately it doesn't get to that spot a lot of the time online, but I, I guess that's where I wish it would go. So that's not really a targeted critique at you or anyone in particular, but I guess that's just kind of my view in general that, hey, people communicate things in different ways and people ultimately receive information in different ways. And I think that's a benefit. And I think ultimately, if we all kind of accepted that premise and embraced the fact that we all communicate things slightly differently, we all have uh, slightly different ways of evaluating the evidence. Like the, the one thing, again, kind of coming back to something I don't think maybe hits as hard for people that are like super interested in the outcomes and stuff is like ultimately every single person has like a subjective lens in which they view even quote unquote objective things. And I think that is often colored in the interpretation of the evidence for people. Like certain people are going to have, like if somebody coaches predominantly 
lower tier in the training kind of spectrum individuals and people that are predominantly focused on getting a really efficient training session in before they go to work, that's going to change substantially the way that they're viewing evidence and the degree of differences between conditions, the the um, types of individuals in the studies that they really value, like all those things are going to be completely colored by the lens in which they view that consciously or subconsciously. And that's the exact same way in the opposite direction. So I think the fact that people have different interpretations of the same evidence is kind of obvious to me. Like th- those those subjective lens in which we view the problems and that's the part that we need to communicate to one another and hopefully kind of find a middle ground because I think if we're able to understand those differences in the subjective lens that we're actually permeating the the perspectives through, I think most people would kind of just shake hands and, oh, okay, that makes sense. I, I get it. Like if you can't really understand why somebody comes to a certain position, I think you probably don't understand their position well enough. Now, whether you agree to the premises that lead to that conclusion, that's a different story. But like ultimately you should be able to at least explain why they got to where they got to. And then you can have a, you know, hopefully a lighthearted, fun conversation about lifting weights where you may disagree. So I don't know if that's a good answer, bad answer, what you think about that, but that's, that's where I'll go with it. Well, you can wish in one hand, you, you know, they say, and you can <laughs> defecate in the other. Uh, it's interesting. Cause this, I think this is the, this is the second time, like that this has been the theme, right? You know, and I'm waiting for like, dude, like you, whatever press around suck. Uh, or whatever, but, uh, so our content must be very technically good. Uh, but you know, it's, I would say, you know, what, one of the things that's always, and and because it's a constantly moving target is navigating social media, how to deal with that. And the fact that we have to deal with not only just more people, but a more diverse range of individuals and opinions than we otherwise like organically would. Sure. Um, and it's interesting how, you know, whatever I have almost 140,000 followers or mm-hmm. something like that is whatever. And we have multiple platforms, et cetera, that it really only takes like, you know, out of all of those people that see our content or whatever, right. It's like, it's like, okay, there's one or two people yep. that will essentially change like the whole you know, stigma of what's going on and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, okay, whatever, right? Um, you know, because, I mean, I don't know, I could be I could be wrong, but, you know, because, like, in terms of online, like, like negative interactions, you know, whether, I, be, I would think I've had pretty much positive reactions with almost everybody. Yeah. But at the same, but then, and then I, what's interesting is the people that I've had negative interactions with is most most people have also had those <laughs> negative reactions with so you see you're laughing you know exactly everybody knows who we're talking about without actually talking about them um but i don't know i go back and forth between whether whether or not to ignore things whether or not to respond or whatever but what i've found is that while seeking out conflict i don't think is fruitful at all what i have found fruitful is is that using conflict as an excuse to cover a topic or have a conversation. Uh, now, whether the, whether the other party in that group then wants to be upset about that or whatnot, yeah, yeah. like yeah. I like in that case, it's like, well, I mean, you brought something up. I responded with how I, how, how I feel about it. A lot of people be like, oh, just don't respond to those things or, or whatever. Um, but honestly, I think that some of the best explanations come after a criticism of an idea. Sure. 
right? You know, because some, I mean, a lot of times when you're just trying to, you know, cover a topic, you can't even conceptualize all of the details that you would need and all the questions that, you know, potential people would have. And so one of the things that I like about actually having people critique or like, like I would, I would much rather have a bunch of people that are constantly, you know, saying where they disagree with me on in a way that I could then say, okay, here's, here's my response Mm -hmm. to that, to that objection. Right. Um, but I think a lot of people can't do that civilly. Sure. And so then the decision is, well, if it's one of those people, do you just ignore it or do you still Mm -hmm. take that opportunity for the benefit of my following? Like for the people that are following me as like, okay, Hey, here's this counter argument. And here's how I would respond to that. Mm-hmm. And the feedback that I've gotten is largely that that's actually helpful, especially because people are not just seeing my content, they're navigating the sea of those ideas. So, well, I think it's great that, you know, everybody can have kind of their own, you know, perspective and their way of communicating. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I look at, like, and this is the reason that we take pretty much every course and follow every major influencer, educator, whatever that we can is we kind of have to understand what our, like the world that our students are living in mm-hmm. and what's being communicated to them so sure. that we can understand how to communicate our, our ideas in that same world and also be able to answer questions that come from that. Like nothing is worse for me as a teacher than when a student asks me a question and I have like no idea mm-hmm. where this idea came from or the context of it or, or whatnot, sure. right? But if I can speak on that idea from, oh yeah, that comes from here, you know, I've seen their, their other stuff or whatnot. I know where they're coming from. Then I can more properly communicate with that student. So that's one of the reasons that I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I'm okay. Like, and the other, the other, the other aspect of it I see is, is that I know like a lot of people have your perspective Hmm. on it. Um, and I think that I think that that's good. And I think that, you know, this is where maybe I give myself a little bit more leeway than maybe some of the people that want to be like, Hey, you know, I'm an arbiter of the scientific community yeah, or, yeah. or whatever yep. is I'd be like, okay, fine. You know what? You don't want to get your lab coat dirty. I, I will go ahead and I will, I will take some of these criticisms and arguments sure. head on. And try and be someone that can kind of operate in that median, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, um, I don't have a, I don't have a PhD, but I would consider myself someone that is informed enough on both spectrums that I can kind of have those conversations that otherwise would not happen sure. between those parties. Um, and that's exactly kind of what I'm trying to do right now with the little, you know, spat between, you know, you know, uh, science doesn't mean anything for hypertrophy or everything mm-hmm. in hypertrophy is based on science, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, which, and this is funny. Did you, did you watch the episode that I did with, uh, Eric Helms just out of curiosity? Yes. yes. Right. Um, he had a great, so I'll, I'll put that one down of the details here for you guys as well. Like, uh, he had a great, like about 10 minute description. Cause I asked him like what percentage of like coaching and practice actually comes from like the scientific research versus what is basically the stuff that we're doing from, you know, 
the working with like principles applied to NM1 and more of like a, uh, we're, yeah. we're observing an anecdotal and, you know, and his response is like, oh, it's like 90% of what we're doing in real time, right? Which is what I would consider like anecdote because it's specific yeah. to yeah, yeah. Sure. to that person, right? Um, but then another person basically says like, hey, I mean, not def definitely not in the nice nuanced contextual way, but basically took the side of like, yeah, you know, the, you know, the stuff that I'm working out myself is way more valuable than the stuff that research has to offer me. Um, and I think if we're being honest, like in the real world, yes, that doesn't mean that the stuff in the research isn't valuable. It definitely gets us to a better mm -hmm. starting place. But if we yeah. literally were just to be like, okay, you know, if you had to choose between not being able to know anything about your client, but having the research versus the other way around, you probably would like, no, actually what I would like is I would like to be completely ignorant to the research and be able to actually track and observe what's going on with my client. Like the, you would yeah. probably pick, or you'd probably pick that. Um, and I mean, both of these things should exist in harmony, but I just think it's funny that not definitely the, the messages were not delivered the same, but mm -hmm. in a way they're both leaning towards like, Hey, this other thing is very important. And the context of the latter being somebody that is, we'll say as far on the advanced spectrum mm -hmm. as you could get, right. Which means yeah. contextually the reason like, so looking through that lens, um, you know, it's very easy to see how you could get to the point where like, look, I mean, I've been training for 20 years. Like there's mm -hmm. probably nothing that's going to come out in the research that's going to be more informative than my 20 years of training. Sure. Like probably, right? Um, anyway, and I think that's where, you know, people that have a lot of experience in the field, but also are kind of in the, you know, in the scientific community or whatnot can kind of be like, can kind of have those conversations. And occasionally that means that we're going to have to piss off one side or the other, at least for a minute, right. To be able to get that conversation going. And that's kind of something that I found is, is that I have had to, we'll say, turn heel acutely, at least in the eyes of somebody mm -hmm. to get the pull of like, now, now we can actually have a conversation on this. Sure. Because otherwise it's because otherwise it's just dismissive, mm -hmm. right? Um, but it, there definitely is a line, yeah. I, that right, like so that that doesn't get into ad hominem. That just means like, hey, I'm going to push a pretty strong counter argument to this, but I'm going to do it respectfully. Yeah. But sometimes people can't reciprocate that, and then it, it's like, hey, because you challenged me, I'm not going to reciprocate in that way. I'm going to escalate it, and that's the unfortunate situation that I think, you know, I've gotten in. Yeah. These guys currently like debating the, you know, what matters more, science or anecdote, like that they're kind of getting in. It's just like once it escalates to a certain point that I think that's just a, well, now we're in a bad place, right? And it's hard to sure. come back from them, like especially if you're the other party. Like if, if, you're, if, if you're having a debate with somebody and then they take it to the next level, it's emotionally it's hard not to yeah. just right. respond with that. But also then it just kind of like it makes you just want to cut off the communication. You know, or no longer discuss it because you basically like, all right, well, how how do how am I gonna how am I gonna continue to articulate valid objective sure. you know, ideas or counterpoints when all it's happening is I'm getting, you know, just like ad hominem 
you know, mm-hmm. in the in the other direction, right? And so it basically, I don't know. Yeah, but uh, anyway, I think mean, that's my defense. Yeah, yeah. Just just add one thing onto it, and not to belabor too much. I I guess just to be just to be clear on my position, like first and foremost, I think defending ideas is crucial. Like that's how we get closer to the truth, right? So I think that position discussing these things you know going back and forth on interpretations of evidence and clarifying those subjective contextual points where the interpretation may differ that's absolutely vital so i i that's in no way do i want to dismiss that at all i think the tough thing comes so the way that i view this just from an online perspective once again these are just general points i'm not talking at you necessarily um the tough thing comes when how how like comparing how you would handle a disagreement with somebody you know extremely well in person versus handling how you would handle a disagreement online. And I think the 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 part of handling disagreements that's challenging is like when you know somebody extremely well, the part of the equation you are pretty intimately familiar with is how somebody else receives information. And then you can tailor the way that you deliver a disagreement towards that. And so online, particularly when we don't know somebody particularly well, even if you've had multiple online interactions with somebody, it's a very different thing of knowing how somebody handles disagreement in person, it can read their nonverbal body language, all those kind of things. That paints a better picture on how somebody receives information. So I think when you have disagreement or when you're you're challenging somebody else's position, that's the point of the equation that's really challenging to get right. But I also think that's the most important part to focus on because while me and you may handle critiques and criticism in a very specific way, and that's how we're evaluating the other half of the equation, the reality is people handle disagreement very differently. And I think that's the part of the equation that can lead to a very different outcome, even if the input is the exact same. So I think just spending time on thinking about how other people receive information, even though we feel like we're delivering the same exact point, the way in which that's communicated can lead to a very different outcome, which is challenging for all communication. And now this is completely unrelated to resistance training, but this is <laughs> it's an interesting conversation nonetheless. So I think, I think yeah, that, that's, that's just like a general challenge of communication, science communication, social media in general is okay, I know how I receive information and you're kind of making a prerequisite assumption that let's, I'm assuming my, most of my audience is people like me. So let's communicate how I feel like I would like to receive information. And that's probably a challenging bet a lot of the time. And, and probably the, the, to use a pun here, the way that people receive information probably is also end of one as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, to relate it to what we're doing, there's a, there's a diminishing returns on both both <laughs> both ends of this sure and you got to know when and where to pull that lever. there you go right so there you go see it's back it's back it's back <laughs> on track um cool well uh all right well so since that wasn't resistance training uh we'll just i'll, I'll put you into a black and white stance right uh sure lo- training at long muscle lengths you know <laughs> bees knees for her first fee yes or no uh sure, sure? okay yeah. yeah all right um you know, I think that's I think that's going to be an interesting conver- conversation. Um, you know, that that continue continues to go on, right? Hundred um, percent. So, all right, cool. So, uh, where can people find you, see more of your work, all that good stuff? Sure. Yeah, you can just head over to my Instagram at zach.dayadrivenstrength on Instagram. Hit the link tree in there. That's pretty much access to everything we do. Obviously, casting. Thanks again for having me on. This was an awesome conversation. Got into a lot of the nuances that I think. A lot of people don't think about the analysis at face value, which I think are incredibly interesting and and ultimately can paint a pretty different practical implementation picture depending on kind of where you're on a lot of these spectrums that we kind of talked about. So I think this is a cool conversation that definitely adds a lot to the to the other ones that are out there. So I appreciate it and thanks for having me on. 
Yeah, you're welcome. It was great to have you. And I think, you know, the more that we can do these kind of like, you know, conversations between, you know, science and people that have a tremendous amount of field experience or whatnot, I think, I think these are fun conversations. And I think that's where the most, we'll say, the most practical outcomes, sure. you know, come from this stuff, right? Uh, so cool. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And uh, check out all the details in the bottom for the the Revive podcast. I'll put in that. Uh, I'll I'll put in the link to the uh, quote from Eric Helms uh, and all of Zach's details down there below. So thank you, everybody, and we will see you on the next episode. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you give us a like, subscribe, and leave us a review, and we will see you on the next episode of the N One Experience.